I just think it's cool that people can do what they love and they can make money. You don't have to be sleazy about it or whatever. I mean, yes, there are some people who are, but there's some people who are legit at it. And it's just, I don't know, I just think it's fascinating that, you know, with social media and technology and the internet and everything that people can find this weird little niche, you know, support themselves or, you know, have a, a little second income or at the very least a hobby that pays for itself. This is From the Ground Up, the story of me starting my reptile business. Welcome to number 49 of From the Ground Up. First, I want to give you guys a little background of like why we do our shirts and why we do our merch. If you don't know or you haven't listened to the podcast, portcitypythons.com. Um, we have shirts available. That's what we do to basically fund our podcast. And I don't want to put ads in the podcast and I don't want to ask you guys for like money or anything like that. But it would be awesome if you support the podcast by buying a shirt or using our Amazon affiliate link, which is like you don't have to pay any extra. You just go to our link, which is going to be in the description below. And then you buy things like you normally would on Amazon. I think we get like 5%. So um, thank you to the person who bought season one of House Hunters, because we got 50 cents. Shout out to that person. House Hunters, what's yeah. up? So as long as you click through our link, then go to Amazon and buy whatever you want, Amazon gives us money. For no reason. For no reason. For no we reason. Everyone, it's, not like, it's not like we are like making Amazon's business, you know? I don't know. We're yeah. not we're not turning we're not converting people on Amazon. But they saw, they I guess know. we're but, technically bringing people to Amazon because we make the yeah. link available. But were they going to buy House Hunters before we gave them the link? Or I don't know. I don't how, know. Should someone House was Hunters watching be a paying snake us? Video and was like, oh, I want to watch House Hunters now. You need a house <laughs> with a good basement for <laughs> snakes. So they were doing research. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> and on that note, we're going to actually start. So today we have Donovan Winterberg. So Donovan, we are drinking a notorious OAT from Four Corners, a local Dallas brewery right here. Pretty sure to anyone. And it has cool fucking you know they should know the reference, but it it opens up like you tear it off. But Donovan, what are you drinking over there? Of course it'd be Guinness. There you go. We are As a, fans a over proud here. Irish boy myself, that's a good choice. But it is the, um, what is it, like the extra stout, or it's not the original Guinness? Yeah, it's extra stout. Yeah, that's good. It's hard to find stouts out here. Well, not if you're talking Guinness, but yeah, we drink pretty much exclusively stouts and zero hoppiness and IPAs. And So Donovan, give us a little background on... Where you grew Great up and <laughs> while I'm opening transition. a beer, while I'm opening a beer, uh, give us a little background on where you grew up and what got you into snakes. Well, I'm originally from Southern Illinois, um, and I actually, where I live now is pretty much where I grew up, and it's within 30 minutes of Snake Road. So I'm sure a lot of your listeners, viewers are familiar with that. No idea. Um, I've been. Go- <laughs> she doesn't know. I don't know what that is. is. Well, Snake Road is the only road in the U.S. that they closed because of the uh, reptiles migrating across it. 
Um, there's like a uh, bluffs on one side of the road, and it's not like it's a major highway or anything. It's like within a park on the other side. Um, so it's you know it's got this nice mix of habitats. So every spring, the animals come out of the bluffs and go down to the swamp, and then in the fall they go back in there. Um, but yeah. I'm from that area. I've got uh, a lot of family and friends that have private land all around there too, which is really nice because I have access to places most people don't go to. Um, and like I said, there's not really much to do in Southern Illinois. Um, I've always liked animal before I started kindergarten. Um, and I kind of later got into, you know, more specifically amphibians and reptiles. Once I was like 12 or 13, started keeping snakes then. Um, you know, I would go out and catch, you know, pretty much everything, you know, I could find, you know, and keep it. And then um, that was like the 80s. Then, you know, I had a few things I got from pet stores, some of which I had no business keeping. I had no clue what I was doing. Um, but I got my first corn snake on my 16th birthday, which I should know the math right now. <laughs> um I'm, I'm 42 now, so just subtract that. But um, And I had him for over 20-something 20, 20 years, actually. Wow. Um, and, you know, I always just preferred uh, North American colubrids, especially corns. I know they kind of got, you know, this... They're the easy beginner snake, um, but I had problems with that. I liked all the genetic, um, you know, you know, things I could do with them, and they were so easy to keep, and yeah, I just didn't really feel like I needed to overcomplicate things. Kept a lot of other rat snakes, milk snakes, king snakes, you know, stuff like that, garters. Um, I had a pair of ball pythons for maybe six months. And this was like long before the, you know, they became kind of the big thing. And I just, I don't know, they just didn't do anything for me. That's him. Um, I sold them off against them. I think it's cool, all the stuff people's done with them. Um, but yeah, I've always been just a big colubrid guy and you know, it's what I enjoy doing and you know, I, I, I'm just fortunate enough where I have cheap taste in snakes, I guess. So, yeah, I think people forget that back in like when I first started, it was like the nineties. I wasn't starting anything. Like I was with my dad and my dad kept, what do you, wait, 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 wait. What? You can't say when you first started growing the night. Well, when I was a fucking child. 90s. You yeah. were, you didn't start it. But, but what I'm saying is that in the 90s, like, corn snakes were the only thing where you would find cool mutations and all these different mutations. And then, like, ball pythons were, like, the sickly things that don't eat, that didn't have any sickly? use in the hobby. So it's like, I guess, explain a little on how the hobby's changed from, like, the beginning when you started to now. Yeah, I mean, you know, when I started doing it, like I said, I, I got my first animals. You know, I think I paid, it was well over $100 for just an albino corn snake from the pet store. Whoa, whoa. This, like I said, this was before really the internet was a thing. Um, it, it's, it's part of the reason, you know, some snakes, like the ball pythons and stuff like that, um, they don't have as many, you know, they don't lay as many eggs, so they're not as easy to reproduce. Um, you know, corn snakes, it's not uncommon to get, you know, 20 or 30 eggs, you know, if they double clutch within a season from one female. Um, and, you know, it's just, I think it was just, uh, it was just kind of the thing to do. You know, there, 
you know, I, I've always had the belief that with all the different, you know, mutations and stuff like that, you know, like within ball pythons, I mean, theoretically, you know, why, why couldn't you do that with anything else? Um, and I still think to this day, there's a lot more things for corn snake gene pool than people have actually taken the time to figure out just because there really wasn't that incentive to, you know, I mean, just look at the big variation in normals. Um, you know, and the interesting thing I will say comparing corn snakes to bull pythons is, um, and you know, if I'm wrong, someone correct me, but in corn snakes, most of the genes, except for, you know, a few are recessive traits. And that seems to be more the opposite where you get like, um, incomplete dominant, and, you know, other traits like that within the ball pythons. And like I said, it, it, it blows my mind, you know, just to see all the, the stuff people are producing with that. But, you know, um, I'm like I said, I'm not glad that, you know, that some people, I mean, I think it's cool that people can make good money breeding the snakes. Um, and I know that's a whole nother discussion right there, yeah. um, <laughs> which I don't know if I want to get into, but, um, I just think it's cool that people can do what they love and they can make money. You don't have to be sleazy about it or whatever. I mean, yes, there are some people who are, but there's some people who are legit um, at it. And it's just, I don't know, I just think it's fascinating that, you know, with social media and technology and the internet and everything, that people can find this weird little niche, you know, and, you know, support themselves or, you know, have a, a little second income or at the very least a hobby that pays for itself. You know, and I just think that's cool. And I, you know, and I don't care if it's snakes or art or whatever somebody does. I'm just like, you know, you, you've got your thing that you're, you know, that you're good at and you know about, and you know, it's, you can make that into, you know, something, which is, you know, just minimal effort. Yeah. That, um, why there's more recessive in colubrids. Like that was a question I had for, uh, we had a geneticist, we had Dr. Travis Wyman and he explained yeah. that, um, colubrids are actually further in evolution therefore they have less of a rate of mutation and they're all recessive for some reason he would be much better at explaining mm. i'm stupid but for some That's reason it has to do it has to do with that colubrid species are more involved than your uh boas and pythons so, right which i thought uh, was cool I never thought about that but that's kind of that's a cool idea yeah, yeah, but so so basically corn snakes for the most part, or a lot of your colubrids as you see are like 85% recessive when it's 85 incomplete dominant maybe on pythons. Right. They're just made up numbers. Right. But, but so where does where does art come into this whole thing and where do they intersect? Well, yeah, I have been doing art just as long as, you know, I've been interested in animals, you know, like I said, since I was at least in kindergarten, if not before. Um, and I, I've got report cards from, you know, grade school where the teacher's putting the notes that I'm always drawing animals. And, you know, after, after college, you know, I was like, you know, everybody's like, go to college, you know, after high school, everybody's like, go to college and everything. And I was like, okay, I went for art and I didn't really do anything with it. Um, after that. And, uh, I just kind of put it on hold because, you know, like I said, I got more involved in the reptile thing. And I'm, when I get interested in stuff, I get obsessed with it. And it almost to the point where it crowds out everything else. Um, I can about it and just, that's just how I am. And so the art was just kind of like put off on the side. Um, and like I said, I wasn't really doing a whole lot with it. And, um, when I started seeing my, uh, 
uh, my son's mother, you know, she, she did a lot of art too. And she kind of got me back into doing it as well. And she was doing some commissions and stuff. She, she was a reptile breeder herself. And, you know, I seen her doing it. I was like, I'm going to try it and stuff like that. And then I kept doing it more and more. And, um, you know, it was kind of nice encouraging each other to do it. And, um, like I said, I was posting stuff and then people, you know, weird thing, they start giving me money for it. And <laughs> so the more, the more that happened, that just encouraged me to do it more. Well, my, you know, reptile collection isn't what it used to be 10, 15 years ago by any stretch. Um, but now, like, I just started doing more of the reptiles. And it, it, it seems like such an obvious thing now to kind of combine the two. But I've only really kind of been doing the reptile art thing for maybe two years. Um, you know, and then I've, I've had a graphic design background as well. I got to go back to school again. And so I went for graphic design, if anything, just because I had all the art classes out of the way. Um, so I started doing logos for a few friends, and that picked up. And now it's like... Every, you know, every, I won't say every day, but a couple of times a week, I'll get somebody asking me to do their logo. Um, so now I'm at the problem where I, I probably took on more commissions than I should have <laughs> just because people were asking me to do it. I'm like, sure, you know, and then it's kind of, you know, now it's almost to the point where it's like, okay, I, you know, cause I still got my own projects I want to work on, but at the same time, you know, I've got to get this other stuff out. And I mean, there's nothing else I'd rather be doing. Um, and like I said, one advantage of the art thing is I don't have to feed it if it doesn't sell. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, packing up for shows, bringing reptile art is a heck of a lot less stressful than, you know, dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of baby snakes to take and worrying about, you know, the temperatures and everything else like that. So I don't know. I kind of feel like with, with the reptile thing, it's kind of like I kind of did that. You know, I still love it, and I'm, you know, I'll probably get back into it a little more um, than I had been the past few years. But I, I kind of feel like now I've kind of found my niche. Um, so you know, it's not to say maybe five, ten years from now I might try something different. But you know, like I said, right now it's my favorite thing to do. People keep giving me money to do it, so <laughs> so why not? Yeah, I'm gonna do that. Yeah. So what was the height of your collection and how did you exactly transition from the giant collection you had? I'm guessing oh. you had more snakes and then to where you are now. Yeah. Um, I know at one point I had like over 120 breeders and I think all but maybe half a dozen of those were corns. So I was producing roughly maybe 1,200 baby snakes a year. Um, and, you know, a lot of that would go wholesale and stuff like that too and trade them to my friends, you know, um, and, it, and it's fun, you know, until you've got 500 snakes to feed that night. And it's like I said, it's not something that, Oh, I don't feel like doing it. I don't feel good. I want to go do something else. You can't, you know, not to do it. And it just became really stressful and ended up moving to Tennessee for a few years. Um, Tennessee has got some weird laws, um, on colubrids. Um, really? Yeah. It well, you can't keep anything native to Tennessee, which corns are native there. Oh fuck. <laughs> um, without without a permit. Um. And so, anytime you want to bring anything, you got to get your permit from the state before you bring it in. Which means you can't really go to a show and pick something up and bring it back because you won't have your permit ahead of time. Uh. Um, 
And then they have a, uh, and that's about $30. Last time I checked, I mean, it's been a couple of years. They might have changed it. So it's about $30 anytime you want to bring anything in. It doesn't matter if it's one snake or 100 snakes. But then to breed them, you need another permit that's about 300. I think it's over 300 now Whoa. a year to breed them. Um, and yeah, it, it's just, you know, the, the, on the plus side, though, if you do, you've kind of got the, the market cornered there because nobody else wants to mess with it, you know. Um, well, so a lot it's not of even it's not even cost effective for, if you're just a small breeder. I think about exactly. us. We had our you know twenty babies. We didn't even make three hundred dollars. Even off that, did this we? year, we're gonna have two hundred babies. I'm not sure. We'll make over three hundred. Right, but and then but your mark is just drastically right. taken just, away as it, far as I mean. Can you legally sell in Tennessee? Really? Well, yeah. I mean, with with your permit, and you got to keep your paperwork and everything, but. Where it really gets but does the individual have to have the permit? Yeah, yeah, which, um, how many people, yeah, how do you check? That? Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm sure there's all kinds of stuff going down on Craigslist, but right. <laughs> I kind of felt I had a you know a relatively large target on my back, not only because I already contacted the DNR there, but you know, I'm sure that they monitor certain groups and stuff like that. Um, and you know, and to their defense. You know, a lot of these guys, you know, they don't really want to mess with it. You know, they don't know a milk snake from a corn snake or anything, let alone all the mutations and stuff like that. You know, they, they just kind of, yeah. you know, fishing and hunting and everything, you know, that kind of stuff, deer and turkey and all that. Um, you can't really expect them to be up on every mutation. But um, what Tennessee defines as native, they don't recognize a lot of subspecies they use the audubon field guide if you're familiar with that to determine uh, what lives in Tennessee. so you can't have california king snakes you can't have Honduran <laughs> milk snakes you can't have cape gopher snakes um because that field guide doesn't recognize subspecies and a lot of those subspecies are now you know, recent, you know, taxonomy has like elevated them to full species status. You know, I know the king snakes and milk snakes, you know, is kind of pretty crazy right now. Um, so they use outdated taxonomy <laughs> to determine what they are. So, it's, so it's a mess. Like you just. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I love Tennessee. Don't get me wrong. Um, and I wouldn't mind going back there, but their reptile laws are kind of strange now the advantage of illinois the guy that's in charge of the dnr in illinois scott ballard a, a well-known central american milk snake breeder and i've known scott for you know how he lives less than an hour away from me so he's actually got some of the laws changed recently in illinois that for the most part make it a lot more reasonable We'll say. I mean, still in Illinois, if I'm going to keep something native like, um, you know, black rat snakes or whatever, you know, I have to get a permit. Um, but Scott knows, you know, what's what. And he's not looking to just, you know, make a bus like I think a lot of uh, agents are probably in some states, you know, just a little. I mean, I don't want to knock them, but th there are some guys that are just a little power hungry. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Scott, Scott's a really great guy. And if you got something that's not killed, He'll give you a warning about it. He's not going to, you know, come in 
raid the place and, you know, confiscate everything, you know, that's, which is unfortunate, but, you know, we've all heard stories of. Yeah, we're in Texas. They're just like. Do people really get off on, like, taking someone's snakes? I mean, there's people, uh, there's certain law enforcement agencies that, of course, when you make a big case out of something, you know, that furthers your career. Right. I mean, especially guys in Florida who take down big importers, if you read yeah. the book, um, Stolen World, or if you read, um, what's the other one, The Lizard King, which is about, like, them taking down the guys in Florida. Like, he made his career off of taking down Mike Van Nostra. Like, that and... makes sense, though. They're putting shit in their pants. But well, like, they're, they weren't personally. They were just buying the smuggled animals. That, but I understand that also. But someone who's just, like, minding their own business, like not fucking with other countries and stuff, why? I don't know. I feel like they're not doing anything. Yeah, they're just trying I'm, to do I'm their not, job. They don't you know. know. Broad brushing everybody, but there are some people, unfortunately, like that. And, you know, and there are some, like, we'll say scummy people in the reptile hobby that... Yes. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it's not limited to one particular, you know, group. But, um, you know, I just think for everybody, it's just best to try to stay on the up and up with everything and help anybody to you know try to go fly under the radar or do something a little you will occasionally like i'll get a message from someone random like trying to get me to do something blatantly illegal and i think those are people just trying to probe me into saying i can get them some endangered species or some shit i didn't know that's happened wait have you gotten any of those kinds of things yeah, I, I've got uh, some questionable inquiries on Facebook. I've got them at uh, when I did Expo selling animals. People, you know, asking to buy really strange things, you know, like red-eared sliders. And, you know, you got a table full of colubrids, and they're asking you for red-eared sliders to buy. And it's like, you know, what, I don't know where else that, you know. At least go ask the person selling turtles at this show. I mean, I don't know, but... So you never know what's going on, and it's just, I don't know. You got some Colorado River toads, so I can catch you with that. You need this up. You don't put that down. I I mean, I've got some opinions on some wildlife laws. I think they're kind of backwards, but I don't know. I think when when things are proven captive bred, then it's captive bred and it's never going back in the wild. That's but they don't have a right. way to prove it's never. Well, I guess it would die. We anyway. we need to document more things, I think, and then they need to recognize our documentation, and then we can work together to make certain things because it's best for us to in Texas to have Texas indigos. So we don't have any idiots out there collecting them. So it's like, if we bred more Texas indigos in Texas, and it was legal to, I think that would further the conservation effort instead of hurt it. No but I, but I can see, wild. I can see where they say anyone could take them and sell them at an expo. Then, but we need that proper documentation to bridge the gap. But you know, there's always going to be people that are doing stuff, you know, shady and not on the up and up too so you got to look at you know what's you know like um one of my favorite species is uh eastern western fox snakes um and i i'm trying to think where it was if it was wisconsin somewhere up you know in their range around the great lakes where there was like a someone found an albino an amil and it's like at a, a nature center last i heard and the 
they've got a lot of restrictions in a lot of states where they're in, where they're protected. But, you know, I, I wonder, like, you know, if they bred that snake, you know, and sold pets or whatever, could they use those funds to help the Nature Center to help conservation efforts? You know, mm. um, yeah, I, I think, it. you know, there's there's some creative um, ways to help conservation. Um, and I love capitalism, I'll, I'll admit it. Um, and I just think sometimes that they work parties together and kind of look at something that's going to benefit. Because there's always going to be people who are selling stuff that they shouldn't. And as much as it sucks, a lot of the stuff, um, a lot of the animals that are endangered in the wild isn't really from over-collection as much as it's from habitat loss. Right. You know, you, you can make it illegal to keep this and that, but if there's no habitat there, you know, there's not going to be anything left, you know, other than, you know, some captive populations. So, I mean, I don't know. I'm not going to pretend like I've got all the answers, like I'm this, you know, like I said, I breed pretty corn snakes and draw pictures. Um, you know, I'm not, you know, probably the best person to ask, but I, I think there's, I, I, like I said, I think some of the laws are kind of backwards. Um, you know, when it's a hobby, most people want to reproduce the animal and make more. If the problem is there aren't enough of them, it seems like some, you know, there should be somewhere in the middle where their nature center, whoever, certain individuals could be licensed to keep them. And be that middleman. I don't know. Yeah, I mean. And there's just, I don't know why there would be laws against corn snakes as far as, you know, we have, yeah. no one wants a wild type corn snake. <laughs> well, unless it's these certain locales, but like for the most part. Right. Right. Well, uh, in Illinois, um, emery rats, which used to be considered a subspecies of corn snake, they are protected. But the, the reason is um, they're threatened in Illinois is because we are like the eastern extent of the range and only comes the, a few counties. Yeah, so you could find a million of, of them here in Texas or go a little bit farther north, probably where you are in Oklahoma, you can find even more, I'm sure. Right. Doesn't yeah, same sense. thing with the uh, West Hognose. That's another one that's protected in Illinois. Yeah, because it's cold as fuck um, up there and they don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know. I mean, do you think it's kind of good? It's silly sometimes. Sorry. Do you think that it's good that it's such a state-by-state state difference, or do you think it would be better to have a blanket? No, I think state-by-state. It state, has to but... be state-by-state? State. Yeah, well, I mean, in the, like I said, one of the problems with this, with the state-by-state state thing is not every state has the same taxonomy. Ooh. So, like I said, in um, Tennessee, they don't recognize emery rat snakes as a separate species to them. So theoretically, you know, scaleless corn snakes, which came from an emery cross, I guess would be considered pure in Tennessee. I don't know. Uh. I mean, let's, <laughs> let's talk about individuals. I mean, at this point, do you consider things like creamsicles and scaleless? I mean, back in the day, there was nothing wrong with it. Are those crosses, do you have anything wrong with that? Right. Um, I've never really been into creamsicles. I mean, I love scaleless just because they're so different. Um, and, you know, scaleless is one of those things where people are of one or two extreme opinions. <laughs> they either hate them or they love them. Um, I, you know, I, you know, they're so different looking and, you know, they do a lot of things with the patterns as well. I find them pretty interesting. But, 
you know, there's so much, you know, in corn snakes. And I don't, you know, I don't think everything in the wild by our like hard and fast rules of species either. I think, you know, there's probably a lot more mixing of what we currently recognize as different species. You know, um, I know there's documented cases of the fox snakes and bull snakes, which aren't even in the same genus. And uh, gopher snakes and king snakes out in California, I think, are documented. And that's just the ones that they've documented it is. They may even, like, look completely like one or the other, but still contain the genetics. Mm-hmm. So it's to set aside these little you know boxes of clear cut this is this and that's that but i don't think nature really it's humans trying to name shit for their own sake because we like categorizing things when in fact nature doesn't give a fuck and a slowinski's corn may be a hybrid of a western rat snake and a corn snake and may not be but either way we recognize it one way I will say Slowinski's is one, and I've, you know, probably stepped on a few toes on social media about it, where I've seen people mixing Slowinski corns, a.k.a. um, Kisachi rat snakes, which if um, anyone's not aware, they're a newly recognized species of rat snake. They used to be thought to be somewhere of like an intergrade between MRI, the Great Plains rat snake, and corn snakes. But they, uh, with the mitochondrial DNA analysis shown that they were a distinct species. So that is one I'm not in favor of people mixing because they are still rare and relatively new species. Um, where, you know, corns and emery rats, there's so many of them out there. It's not as much of an issue. And I would say the same thing with a lot of uh, Central American milk snakes and stuff like that. There's so few of them in the U.S. because, you know, because you can't really bring them up from these other countries that I wouldn't advocate somebody mixing that. Now, if someone that does like a, you know, the jungle corn, corn times cow king, that kind of stuff, that I kind of put in a different category. Dark magic, that's what I call it. But, yeah. But, I mean, who's to say, you know, 20 years from now, I'm sure that we're going to have a completely new understanding of, you know, species and I know subspecies is kind of falling out of favor with a lot of taxonomists. You know, a lot of the king snakes species have been elevated to species status. Right. I think it gets hairy with subspecies. Especially with like we're also into Moralia, so it's like Australian pythons right. and some of the ones in Indonesia and that muddies up so hard. It just, it's very It makes it too yeah. There's lots of subspecies, but they look very different to me. Yeah, and yeah, and and that's not really the only difference. I mean, we're looking at obvious pattern and color differences, but I'm sure there's all sorts of like metabolic differences, behavior, dietary preferences, and stuff like that that's just not as noticeable. And the other thing you got to keep in mind is by keeping generations of an animal in captivity, we're kind of forcing them into their own different line of evolution. If me and you found, you know, a pair of, you know, we'll say speckled king snakes, and we bred them, and you got half the babies and I got half the babies, who's to say after enough generations your line won't look anything like mine? 
Because they're different places. I mean, I could <laughs> I could breed for cream and you can breed for yellow. And we can end up with 100%. I can end up with black and white pure speckles and you can be have screaming yellow and blacks. And people may not even say that that looks the same. Right. Yeah, and, and we might not even do it intentionally. I mean, the, the reason, you know, that California king snakes look different from Florida king snakes is, you know, they've got different habitat and, you know, all kinds of things. And you're putting all these different environmental pressures on them that are, you know, eventually, you know, no matter how minute, you know, changes, they're still being, you're still bottlenecking the available gene pool, much, you know, alleles and everything that they would normally kind of, you know, outcross with and everything. So, like I said, it's, I, I've noticed the past few years that the, uh, the hybrid controversy wasn't like it was. That's that's a big difference. I think when I kind of got into reptiles, that was one of those things you'd post it and it immediately, you know, on the forums, it was, all, you know, people making all kinds of threats and allegations and getting banned and losing their cool. And I thought, it was, I don't know, I just thought it was kind of silly because at the end of the day, we're all just keeping snakes, you know, in our house. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, to me, this is supposed to be, you know, it, it's for fun. And I think a lot of people kind of, I don't know if they just kind of want to make it out to be something like they're curing cancer or something like that. You know, like, <laughs> We're really not that, that important. Grand scheme of things, which, you know, doesn't say I don't like it any less. Maybe that just shows where my priorities are. I don't know. but No, but at the end of the day, also, whether what we call it, isn't affecting the stink as much as it's making us angry. Yeah, it's just within ourselves. Right, like yeah. we're getting so mad over the names. So I'm like, okay, the snakes didn't change whether I call. I mean, granted, it has different stuff, but. And I think at the end of the day, you need to respect what snakes you have and work with what you like and not care about everyone else. Even though I have my own opinion, so I'm a fucking hypocrite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're kind of like in our own little bubble in a sense from the rest of the world, where they would kind of think it's so petty. You know, that people, you know, and I'm sure people that, I, you know, we've all had our disagreements with, you know, particularly on Facebook that, you know, if we were around each other, we'd probably get along great, you know, but it's just egos and tempers and everything, you know, when you're trying to always one up them with your next comment, you know, I'm guilty of that just as much as anybody. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's just because I'm getting old now where I'm just kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm not as concerned what anybody thinks, you know, this, I do this cause it's fun. Um, you know, and I love, you know, talking to people about it and trying to help out however I can. So, you know, you know, my philosophy is there's enough bad crap going on in the world. This is kind of like my escape from it, mm -hmm. you know? So I'm not going to be bringing all that negativity. And that's another thing that I've tried to explain to people. It's like, We've only got so much time and energy in the day to focus on things. And it's like, I don't know what it is now where everybody's trying to like find something wrong with somebody, whether it's like politics or the way they're keeping their animals or whatever. I'm like, I'm like the good and promoting that instead of just trying to like point out, you know, who's wrong and, you know, bad mouth such and such breeder and this and that. It's just. You know, every time you're kind of, you know, focusing on this negativity, you're kind of robbing yourself from doing something a little more 
productive, something that's going to have a more positive benefit. And so it, it's kind of it tends to it tends to like the people who put out the negativity and stuff like that. Like we're on YouTube, we're on all this stuff. We get plenty of negativity, but it seems to be people that have only been in the hobby for a short amount of time, or people that don't really. I don't want to say. But then you have don't the flip side too. You have the people who've like, been in it forever and think they know everything. Well, there's some people with egos that are like for no reason because, like you said, we're all keeping these snakes in fucking tubs and stuff. And who are we to? So it's kind of yeah. hard balancing between new people and then like super ego. I don't know. Yeah. You know, and I, I've got, you know, people that are always on to me over, you know, they hate the tubs or kind of the, the bioactive setups. And I don't know. I, I kind of like, I'm friends with some of them. And sometimes I just kind of like trolling them and they know, you know, <laughs> we have agreements. And some people, you know, think I'm horribly abusing my animals by keeping them in tubs. <laughs> Um, I just want everybody to know that all my animals I've kept in tubs have been undergoing therapy, and they're doing a lot better now. So yeah, as long as you talk to them, play music, I mean, they're usually good. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I always thought it was kind of funny when I have people tell me, you know, and maybe this little bit of my ego, but when you get criticized by people and you've got animals that are older than those people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like you can't even pay them attention at that point. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's sometimes I I should ignore it. I've got enough to do as is, but <laughs> depends on the mood. If I've had my coffee yet. You know, yeah, but. for me it's like I feel like the the babies are like. What's nice is that when you first have baby baby corn snakes, you realize like how semi semi arboreal they are. So like I try to offer that in a tub as far as different kind of hides and stuff. And it's like, I feel like people might respect him more if we had him in like crazy bioactive setups and like they could explore like, cause they're really athletic, cool fucking snakes when it comes down to it. But right. you know, who's got time for that shit? Sorry. Well, you know, and the other thing that a, a friend of mine pointed out was all some of these recommendations and kept everything in these huge enclosures. That's also going to increase the price and i've seen these same people make accusations like you know your enclosures aren't big enough also complain that your prices are too high <laughs> <laughs> the one at all but i don't know yeah i mean i would I be glad know. to sell an amel for 200 bucks if i i mean i'll be glad to keep it in a six foot enclosure with a fucking ficus in it and 20 bromeliads, I don't give a fuck. Not, 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 very, not very regionally specific to their natural habitat, I should add. Well, it's, 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 it seems weird to me that, you know, a lot of these animals, and, you know, I think we kind of run into the danger, too, of, like, acting like they're all the same. You know, obviously, a corn snake, no snake, it's not a Burmese python, it's not a, a newt or a turtle, but we kind of lump them all into, like, they have the same you know, care, you know, but generally reptiles don't like to stay out in the open, particularly snakes. So it seems weird that people will accuse you of keeping animals in dark drawers or something like that. And they've got this big natural setup so they can look at them. And so, I don't know. I mean, 
And I, what's the you know, first thing? The first thing your snake does is somehow gets behind the background of the enclosure and hides back there in the smallest space and never moves because it doesn't want to be out in the open. Right. So I don't know. I mean, I'm not gonna discount everything people say, but at the same time, it's you know if. If tubs were that bad, I don't think um, we would be where we were or are in the hobby right now. You know, and yet, are they better? And like a larger setup with UV lights, okay, sure. But the, you know, what's better than that is they're in the wild. So, I mean, if you really want to go down that road, what's best for the snake? Is not keeping it at all. (laughs) Right, yeah. So, it's just, I don't know. Like I said, it's... It, you know, it, it's just kind of funny like you were saying it's like some people seem like their only contribution to the reptile hobby is just bitching about everybody else yeah. and that I find more problem um, oh, attract more flies with honey than you do vinegar if you, if you think you know a certain way of keeping animals is better then do it promote it but you know how much of that are you doing compared to like telling everybody else how they're mistreating their animals and how much they hate them for keeping them in tubs. That right there is just going to turn people off. You know? Yeah. But It's like, who really wants to put all their time into something and then at the end of the day have someone just criticize everything they do? Like, like you know, we put so much time and effort into our animals. Who wants to sit there and just have people pick apart every single thing that you do when, of course, you care, like, as much as anyone cares. And, like, we're just as mentally and physically and everything invested into these animals right yeah and like i said it it gets kind of frustrating when people say oh you hate animals if you keep them like that i've seen a couple silly little memes the past week like you know basically saying if you keep your animals in tubs or racks you hate them i'm like no that's true that's fact science you know but anyway (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I mean, I think maybe the ball is going that way more so be- as a retraction from like certain very popular people who are keeping them um, terrible. But uh, there's a whole fucking thing. So Valiant Faint asks, uh, what size tubs do you keep uh, corns in? I'm guessing that's meaning adults, males, females. On corns? Yes. Yeah, I've, you know, used like 28 or 32 quart tubs. Um, yeah, they they would do better in something larger, um, but I've never, like I said, had any issues with them like that. And you know, the reason I do things the way I do it is when I got serious into breeding, I was looking at other people that were successful at breeding those types of animals. Um, and you know, it's just kind of like in business, you you know, look at who's being successful in that, you know, particular field and mimic what they do. Exactly. Right. So when I was trying to determine, you know, how to set my stuff up, you know, and and that's not to say that stuff can't be improved, but if, you know, dozens of people are having great success doing this and it's working, you know, why, you know, I don't know if I necessarily want to like reinvent, you know, it's not to say like that can't be improved. But that's like that's what I've done. If somebody wants to keep theirs in larger, you know, enclosures, that's awesome. You know, I've got no problem with that. Um, but yeah, that's you know how I've always kept. You know, and as far as like ratios to breeding them, 
I try to at least keep two females for every male, um, sometimes more. That way, you know, if uh, I pair that male to those two females and neither of those females produce that year, I can kind of figure out, okay, it's the male. You know, and if I've noticed, you know, I'll keep detailed records. If he did, you know, this is something that's happened a couple years and, you know, there's, you know, definitely him as opposed to if I just had one to one, you know, I don't know who it is. It could be the female. It could be the male. I mean, one that's year true. I had a female or I had a male corn for several years. I never got, you know, he never fathered any babies. And then one day I opened his tub up and that male corn had a clutch of eggs in there. Oh, shit. <laughs> um, and that I think was like, might've been, I don't know if it was the first year I started doing it, but uh, I began like brumating them in groups, you know, like, okay, I'm going to pair these together and I'd kind of put them together or put a couple of females together and stuff like that, you know, cause they're going to be pretty lethargic for those two or three months. You right. Know, what have you, there was male in there too. And just so clearly someone <laughs> did something. <laughs> well, yeah. for me, it's also like you, uh, sometimes you get really overwhelmed and you're putting males here, females there. And then you kind of forget as far as like, if I had two olive pythons or two jungles that, may look very similar i'd be like or a mexican black king snake is a good example actually where right. it's like fuck which one's a male which yeah. one's a female forget very they look all luckily with the juggles yeah. i put i put a, a male with a female and they started battling immediately i was like eh, those are those are two guys yeah i mean I, i've seen people use like uh, metallic paint markers oh. um, which will shed off to kind of identify which is which i mean usually it's one of the cool things about Bridge. you can tell the males from females by their tail shape um, with a little practice but just like with some people every once in a while you get one where you're kind of like not sure um, the thing about sexing snakes is you got a 50-50 chance so <laughs> you know I, I'm i sure I've sold stuff before that was missexed you know mislabeled or whatever like that it happens um, but you know it's you know and you got to you know, there's a lot of considerations when you're when you're breeding animals and selling them that you got to consider from the buyer's perspective and how you're going to make that situation right. Um, and you know, if you do it for any sort of time, you have all kinds of crazy stuff happen. Um, I had someone one time complain. I gave them free animals. Um, you know, they bought like a bunch of them, and I, I told them, I said, "Hey, I'm giving you you know some other stuff here too," and they was all cool with it. And I think a couple of them had their labels switched and they complained about it. And next thing I know, my PayPal account is frozen because they complained to PayPal. Whoa. Um, which really sucked because that was kind of like what I was using, you know, for my business. I have a business account on PayPal. Uh, but once I showed them screenshots of our conversation, <laughs> you know, they kind of... And you that's know. where it sucks. So, if it's like you're trying to go above and beyond to do the right thing, and then yeah, you still get yeah. bit in the ass. Yeah, and and this person was a friend of mine too that I had done a lot of trades and sales with before, and so it's yeah, it's I kind of got to the point where nothing really surprised me anymore. You know, you get people that don't want to pay for stuff that you know some lessons you just learn the hard way. You just got to learn to let it go. You know, it's like. 
so-and-so ripped me off a couple hundred bucks, but is it worth, you know, being pissed off about it, you know, for the next five years or whatever, you know, it's just. And I have a, I have a rap sheet of those people, but it's like, just don't buy from them again. That's yeah, really, but, you know, it, it gets, but you sometimes the situation where there's some people, you know, not to sell to. Yeah. That's the bad thing. It's not just who not to buy from, it's who not to sell to. And you never know. I mean, I've sold animals at a show later while I was still at my table with the animal that was dead. What? That's like, what do you do? I mean, was it just an accident? Did they leave the animal out in the dash of their car? It's like, you, you kind of wonder about it because it was obviously doing great when you brought it. So, you know, you got to refund their money, give them another animal hoping that the same thing doesn't happen just you know it, it's a whole different thing once you go from doing it you know as a hobby to kind of doing it you know more as a business you you know that's it's it's weird it's and it's like that with anything whether it's art or whatever like that you may be really good at breeding snakes and keeping them and everything but that doesn't mean you're going to have the, the skills necessary to deal with people you know that's a right. whole other thing do you feel like those bad encounters you had changed you as a seller or you're just like, this is going to happen no matter what? Like, let me say, or I don't know, did it change how you sell or who you sell to or more strict, all that kind of stuff? Um, well, I mean, at the time, it's like really frustrating. And then kind of like later on, you kind of like learn your lesson. And, you know, it's like I said, now it's kind of like nothing surprises me anymore. Um, you know, what could happen? And I, it's weird because I think the same basic scenarios, I've seen them now that I do more art. It's almost like the same type of issues come up. Um, people, you know, they, they want they want me to draw them something, do a logo, whatever. And you do exactly what they want and they don't like it and they want a refund. Well, I don't get a refund on my time spent on that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I spent eight hours working on that, you know, um, but you kind of got to look at it, you know, is it, is it worth all the headache know? of them? Yeah. Yeah. And you just kind of like, just to shut them up. It's like, and you know, there'll be a bad review in a group somewhere trashing you if something happens, you know, if you do give them that bad experience and don't kiss yeah. their ass a hundred percent. I mean, I, I had this, it was about a year ago, somebody, I was designing a logo for them and I, and I thought it looked really cool. And I will say the tricky thing with doing logos is, um, you want to make the customer happy, give them something they like, but you I also want to make something that I'm proud of and that will attract more business, you know, that looks really good. Um, but you also have to look at it what's the point of the logo and it's ultimately to help them brand their business and generate sales and so other people get it so you got these three you know different things that you're juggling um but this one individual i designed something for them they didn't like it i did a couple more they weren't too happy with it well i kind of moved on i had someone else's i was working on and i posted it and they came back and told me they wanted something just like that and I like literally jumped out of my chair and yelled at my computer because the first one I gave them they didn't like, 
I just changed the text and the color. It was the same layout. <laughs> and that's what they had. And I was like, you know, um, so I, I, I like doing the art sometimes because like the art it's done, it's there. Logos, right. sometimes y'all spend six to eight hours working on this logo and then they want all these changes or they'll like, Hey, can you change this? And you change it and you, you send it for approval and then they want more changes. And then it's like, well, why didn't you tell me all this up front? We could have done it. But you can't tell them that. Right. Um, and, I, and it's not to say that, you know, that's wordy of people, but those are the ones that stick out. You know, you also get to people that are just happy and they kind of like, here's a rough idea of what I want. I love it. And that's, you know, usually, you know, how it goes. But it gets frustrating sometimes. And I get into a situation kind of where I'm in now where you kind of get behind and then people keep wanting changes and then it pushes everybody else back. So I'm kind of like, well, do I need to like put them on hold and work on these other ones? So I don't have, you know, five more people behind, you know, behind just because this other person's kind of being a little, you know, some of it's legit, you know, I'll admit I have spelled people's names wrong, you know, but that's, hey, 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 is that a dick at us? <laughs> that's not cool. Um, no. No, like, um, I had a graphic design job time, and I, and one of the first jobs I had, I spelled the name of the business wrong. I worked for, it was something for them. <laughs> yeah. I, I hadn't even worked there a week, and they printed out thousands of these like brochures. That it's also the person out. who you know you can't be the only person. You know, there's got to be other people down the line because you yeah, see it so else often. You're seeing yeah, it so I mean, often that it probably looks normal to you. Yeah, I mean, I will say the advantage on doing like logos, graphic design projects, it's a lot easier to change things that need change, you know, than if I did a painting, you know, somebody, you know, wanted something different. It's like I can't really, can't as easily go back and change it as I can, mm -hmm. you know, go on the computer and, you know, change the, add a, an I in the, the name or something, but... I love that when people are just like, hey, uh, I just need this and this done, and they act like it's going to take 10 minutes, but they don't know that it affects the whole project that you're doing, as far as especially with graphic yeah. design and illustrations and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's cool because, you know, the, some of the people that I've had the pleasure of doing, like, logos with were people when I started out in the hobby that I really looked up to, and I kind of, like, feel like, you know, it, you know, um, and kind of getting, you know, going in that direction. Um, I'm really, you know, fortunate to be friends with Kathy Love. Oh, you know, most people know oh, it's kind of like the pioneers we, of the corn stick hobby. We might, and uh, I just think that's so cool. Utilize that. Yeah, and you know that her, uh, Don Soderberg, people like that, Walter Smith. Um, you know that you know it's it's or, you know I kind of tell people it's like I know that not everybody you know is into the reptile snakes or whatever like that but from my perspective from like a kid that was you know all about catching snakes and you know I had these people's books when I was you know younger and now you know I just kind of like you know casual conversations hang out with them at shows go out to dinner to me, that's it's kind of like you're a kid playing basketball and like your buddies with Michael Jordan. Yeah, that's, right. I mean, even now, I'm like, oh my god, you're friends with Kathy Love. Like, that's awesome. And I'll tell you what, you won't meet a sweeter lady than Kathy. Um, 
you know, it's just... so I don't feel as bad asking her because like she, I don't know if you saw, we posted on corn snakes about, um, that woman, Connie, I'm sorry, I forget her last name, but she did a early an experiment. Yes. Yeah. Connie early. So she did an experiment with like tearing the pinkies and I was looking at it cause I was talking to like some of my chondro friends, we were talking about how chondros can't right. digest rats and all this stuff. And I was like, well, there's this study, this little experiment that this woman did to prove that corn snakes actually absorb, you know, mice better because they're not used to digesting rodents. But if you slice them, they absorb them better because they can't get through the skin. So I was like, maybe there's some type of parallel. And I posted it up. And then Kathy Love's like, oh, yeah, let me see what I can do for you. And then she got it. And I was like... Fuck, that was sweet. Because <laughs> like she went way out of her way for to go get the full someone she doesn't us. really know. Yeah. Yeah. And and Connie's a vet, so she definitely knows what she's talking about. Um her husband's not just Chuck, hobby science. Yeah, he actually wrote kind of the book on corn snake morphology. He used to publish them every year. Um yeah. I think now like a digital edition, it hasn't been updated in a while. Um, but there's, you know, it's a lot of good information. You know, it's weird because most of the questions that I see, particularly like in corn snakes, because that's, you know, what I specialized in, you know, with like three books, I think would answer, you know, 80 to 90% of the questions, you know, Kathy's book, Don Soderbergh's book and Chuck's morph guide. It, it seems like if people would just, you know, spend, you know, the what on those three books, it's pretty much you know I, and I don't know what better people to ask on those subjects but that's not tell me what morph I have when I have a blurry picture and a yeah. really wild type well like I said I, I had done some photo retouching so I know that and you remember the whole uh, blue and gold dress thing a couple years ago when that was yes. everybody was arguing yes. about example of the, the, the fallacy of posting a photo online and asking everybody else what it is especially you know and it's not it's not like a popular vote determines what it is i mean i've seen people answering a question and i wonder it's like have you even seen any of these that particular morph in person or kept them you know it's like you just want to like be talking um just to answer the question and it's i don't know but yeah lighting not only can that pay a difference, but even uh, different web browsers will render colors differently. Oh, you know, wow. and then you get right. Yeah, the cameras, different cameras are going to photograph. You know, colors. Um, and there's some, you know, uh, morphs of corn snakes like the the salmons. It's got the really pink background. They won't you even can't. show up. It's really hard to capture that. So it's you can give an idea of what it is and what it's definitely not. Oh, there's so many. Uh, Corn snake genetics now that are really, really close and are becoming more and more common. That there's going to be a lot of stuff popping up now that I feel sorry for people trying to figure out what it is. I mean, it used to be this hypo is this a dark hypo or a light normal? You know, I've seen some normals that were lighter than some hypos, but now you've got everything from um, sun kissed and ultra. Um, dilute uh strawberry christmas you know all these other hypo you know all these uh melanistic you know reducing genes that kind of mimic each other you know charcoal and anaries another you know common one and those and those are really common 
but you've got all this other stuff. You know, how long until Castagna is going to pop up in somebody's collection and expected, you know, uh, stuff like that. So just subtle things that you don't know for sure. What do you want to yeah. say? Okay. Uh, a couple things from the chat, by the way, we didn't explain that to him. But if we like say someone's random name, it's because they're popping up in our little like okay. stream chat. I gotta pee while this explanation happens. <laughs> but before I ask their questions in response to what you just said, especially for someone who's new into this, like me, it's already hard to tell the difference. Like that's why we have Sarah. Well, yeah, I was gonna say that too. Stop talking while you're peeing. No. Um. So well, so to plug Sarah, she is. Also, do you what's your last name? Moore? Sarah Moore. Sarah Moore. Yeah. You know her? I'm Sarah like literally can tell you any more if you're asking for. But like even today, she posted a picture. Oh shit, I wish I could remember. I think she was like, Can you tell the difference between these like snow opals and something else? And I'm like, no, I can't tell shit. Like to me, a like coral, an opal, and a snow all look the same. Like, yeah. I they're like, they're already so close. I can only imagine in ten years, like what it's gonna be like. Yeah. It, unless you're like her or a step above me, like it's it's already hard to tell. Um, but at the same time, I love corn snakes in that regard. For that, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, in instances where I will hatch out something and I'm not sure what it is. If it could be this, you know, or have this extra gene, if I'm not sure if it's an anery or a ghost, for, you know, for, um, I'll just label it as an anery and let the buyer know it could be ghost. So at least that way, that seems like better to err on that side than to say, I think it's ghost and it's not. You know, so you kind of get something extra. But yeah, nobody knows. It's just guessing. And especially when you're looking at somebody else's photos. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, I, I have so much stuff that I didn't know what it was, and I'm not going to pretend that I do. Um, if I'd hold back, you know, if, especially if something looked really weird, but and then you get instances where it's that's not even that you know necessarily something genetic either. So it just bad. happened. <laughs> um. Okay. Someone in the chat said, "Can you ask if he still keeps black rat snakes?" I've never really kept black rat snakes. I mean, I, I, I catch them a lot where I live, but um, not really since I was like a kid and I would, you know, keep wild ones for a while. Um, now, there are a lot of morphs I would like to at some point. Um, you know, a lot of lavenders and um, the, uh, what's it, the calico cow suckers, the really yellow looking ones I think came out of Kentucky. Um, you know, there's a lot of interesting morphs, but I've never really kept black rats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's like white sided as well. I saw the cool, and, um, um, like, like yeah, like I grew up catching black rat in upstate New York. There's only like, as far as rat snakes go, there's black rats, you know. And then you may, if you're lucky, like a ring neck snake and a whole bunch of garters. But like black rats were like the only big snake you could find, and they would be like six feet fucking monster black snakes. They were awesome. Yeah. But what were you? I feel like no, you had question. I'm just laughing. Yeah, now no, um, uh, you got the, uh, the issue with uh, some of the taxonomy now where. Oh, back. Um, some of the taxonomy now where, like, black rats isn't even, like, a legitimate thing anymore. You know, they kind of split them all into Eastern, Midland, and Western. 
and God forbid black northern part of the range. God forbid so, I call know, like a rat Texas rat or a Western yeah. rat a Texas rat also down here in Texas because now everything's Western rat. Yeah. So if I say Texas rat, I get put up on I the stake. I still see that. Uh, being, being, yeah, but if you go on like the colubrid, uh, the actual, the people who care. Yeah. Well, the unnamed man definitely calls them Texas rat. The rats. unnamed man. The one with, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and uh, like when I was in Tennessee, I the rat snakes we found there were really distinct looking. They didn't look like any of the traditional subspecies. Um, they were kind of like an olive green color, you know, and they had like, you know, uh, markings. So I'm thinking that's kind of the traditional gray rat area, but they didn't look anything like a gray rat. Um, so I don't know. Several of them like that, and I've got photos of them. You know, if it was kind of like a locale or whatever, kind of middle Tennessee, but I always thought they were really cool just because they didn't look like anything that I was used to seeing. And that's another cool thing about, you go to different parts of the country and you find the same animal, but it looks really different. Right. Um, you know, like they, I found like a lot of black king snakes in Tennessee where like, it's supposed to be black king snakes in Southern Illinois. One that I ever found looked like a speckled king. Um, but, you know, like I said, the, the taxonomy is kind of weird. I'm not going to pretend like I'm a taxonomist. I find all the, the stuff interesting. I always thought it was kind of weird how we kind of made these, like, distinctions on animals by the way they looked. When in the hobby, that's what most people are doing is kind of, like, changing the look. Right. So it's kind of classifying by, you know, I, I kind of felt like the, the mitochondrial DNA was kind of more objective in that sense. Um. But, you know, like I said, that's not my field. So it's interesting, but I can't really say, you know, one way or the other who's right on that. Right. So what are you keeping as far as other than corns besides fox snakes? Um, really, I think let me, mostly it's what I've got right now. I, I sold almost everything earlier this summer um, that I moved back to Illinois. Um, I kind of went through a divorce last year and I just, I just didn't really feel like keeping a bunch of animals. So I had a friend keeping them for about a year or so and we kind of worked out a deal and he was getting ready to send them back. And I just like, you know, I, I didn't really know what was going on with where I was moving and everything. And so I ended up selling most of my collection, um, to my buddy Tim in Miami and I kept a few projects like my specters and heliconias. And then I got the fox snakes. Um, I got a trio of het scalus at a Tinley from my uh, good friend, Jim Steltflug. Um, so hopefully this year I'm going to be building stuff back. Um, but really as of right now, I've just been so, you know, working on doing the art thing. Um, and so the snakes are kind of, it's kind of funny. It went from like the art was kind of something on the side and now it's kind of like, you know, flipped around, but I'll probably still, you know, get back into the snakes thing and keeping more stuff, building the collection back. Um, I would like to work with more rarer North American rat snakes, like the, the Arizona greens. I've always loved those. Uh, I don't even uh, know what that looks like. <laughs> then you know what? It's a Senecolis triapsis, the one that uh, yeah. I'm showing. Thank you. Speak Almost Latin. like a green That corn. makes me understand Speak it. Speak Latin to me. That, that totally makes me get it when you say Latin. I, I'd, yeah. I'd love to get into some of the old world species too. 
I know there's a little bit more of a, they're not as easy as corns, not as forgiving. But you don't want Bajas also? I had those. I made a post the other day about kind of, you know, ask everybody what their top five was. And people have got like these really like stuff on there, like Cobras and like earless, you know, <laughs> monitors and all this stuff like that. And I'm like, I just want some more, you know, Trans-Pecos rat snakes or something. You know, yeah. I kind of felt like, yeah. But I don't know. I Like I said, I I just kind of want to do, I don't really want to like branch off and do something completely different, you know, but at the same time, I kind of feel as far as like corn snakes, I'll always have, you know, a lot of corns, but I kind of felt like kind of been there, done that. And I, you know, I don't want to, again, go on something completely different, but I, the fox snakes is something that I've always loved and I'd like to get, I've got a pair of Easterns. I'd like to get some Westerns and maybe, you know, a couple more pairs of each, two pairs of each. Um, just cause that's something you don't see a lot and you know, they've got pretty much same cares corn. So it's not like I'm getting into something completely different right? as far as care goes and set up and all that kind of stuff. But I don't know. I can I kind of feel, you know, I, I want to keep at, you know, keep, animals but at the same time i'm kind of feeling like the, the art thing i'm feeling like i'm kind of as time progresses i'm falling more into my niche right um yeah so i mean i have this issue where everything is in brumation now so i picked up like an amazon tree bow and i'm like fuck i want a lot of amazon tree bows and like just silly yeah. shit because you know there's certain stuff that's up during the winter and the more you work with something the more you like it kind of so it's like uh, but yeah, I feel you as far as like she wants a lot of the the Asian rat snakes. But quite frankly, that's like just a whole nother like place in my mind to keep in comparison to you know North Americans yeah. or even a lot of pythons. Yeah, I mean, and that's the cool thing about corn snakes is like once you get you know that down, that that care is like applicable to like a lot of species. A lot of stuff. Yeah. You know, if you can keep a corn snake, you can keep most, you know, king snakes. Um, the mountain kings might be a little different, but, you know, most king snakes, um, the pine bull gopher snakes, you know, a little bit, a little bigger setup for those guys that get a little heavier. Um, I really like those guys, you know, milk snakes, stuff like that, you know, other rat snakes. You can kind of use the same, you know, if you got that down, which is easy, of course, um, then you can right. kind of. Whereas you get something like the Asian rat snakes or the Amazon tree boas, I, I, you know, I don't really know anything about those. Um, but I know you don't keep them like a corn snake, obviously, because you know from a different part of the world. Um, you know, that kind of reminds me that that that's one of the things you mentioned earlier. What's different about the hobby is uh, when I got into it, people like kept reptiles. And now it's kind of like you've got all these different almost clicks. Yeah. Like I don't know anybody in the Amazon tree boa community really. I mean, I know a couple friends that have them. We or, just got one. Yeah. We were talking about that, so I brought oh, it up. Shit. Okay. <laughs> Never mind. Missed that part. You know, um, or you know the blood pythons or stuff like that. You know, it's it, there's it's all kind these different worlds how everything's kind of like splintered off and it's, it's grown so much and it's got, it's good and it's got, it's bad with it. But, you know, I used to try keeping up with everything and now it's like, it's just not possible, you know, what all's going on. And 
You know, I hate doing shows sometimes because uh, I want to walk around and look at everything. And it's almost torturous where I'm like, there's all this cool stuff here, you know, and my friends that I talk to online, and I want to go talk to them in person, and I'm stuck behind a table. Yeah. Sometimes, That's why we, we, we drink beer and steal a friend's table and hang out there. The yeah, I, I've got a, a, a 17-year-old daughter that usually goes with me to shows. She's been going since she was, like, really young. And uh, I'm like, hey, watch my table. And she's kind of like, all right, he's going to be back in an hour. You know, it's, you know I get distracted. <laughs> I go to ask somebody else, and then I'm here or something like that. Somebody's got a question, but... I don't just go around once. I go around like two, oh, three, four times. Like four times. Every time it's a fucking three-hour excursion. I feel like the boy shopping with the girl holding their purse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the female version of that. Of that. It's like me but going to Victoria's Secret. But it's worse. It's it's so much worse. <laughs> but like we were, we held a Cayman. You didn't like that. The trans trans people's rats. I liked the Cayman, but I felt wrong about holding the Cayman because it should yeah. have been there in the first <laughs> place. Like, so do any of you guys want to buy the worst pet ever? Why don't we put this in a ten gallon? And, and then they had fun. the Caymans next to a yellow anaconda, which I next oh. to all the Amazons, <laughs> which was like, I love you, but I can't but have your parasite load right now. This in my all face. feels wrong. That's why corn snakes are safe. I wouldn't even buy a corn snake. They had a corn snake called red corn snake. Like, I... Yeah, it was redder than the others. It's yeah. It was a red. Because like some of them were more yellow. Like, some PetSmart were... doesn't even call them red They're corn fancy. snakes. They call they them fancy. They should have put fancy on there. But like, if you're, you're vending at a show, don't have something called red corn snake. Like, come on. Yeah, I, I've had... Uh... There was a couple posted uh, this week already that I've seen where people are like asking the uh the vendor but they're pretty well known you know and somebody asked what's a neptune corn snake and like everybody's like what never and heard of that someone's about to pay five well, thousand dollars they described it and showed a picture and apparently it was just a motley like a pinstripe motley <laughs> or something you call it motley i call it a neptune you know i mean you know, who's to say, like, the person writing the labels misunderstood what somebody else said, wrote something wrong. Imagine if you heard someone, like, from far away, maybe Motley turns into Neptune. <laughs> then, I don't know. But that's that's hilarious. But, that, I mean, there's so many different morphs out there. If I wasn't... I don't think people understand when they see that table with you know, a hundred different species. This isn't exactly a, the best breeder in the world. But it's not that they're the best breeder in the world and breed a hundred different species. People, novices don't know that. What do you do to, like, educate a buyer at a reptile show? Or, you know, your your snake is too expensive. I can go buy the red corn snake for 15 bucks or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I'm probably not the best person to ask on that. Um... You know, obviously you can't be, you can't say what you're thinking. Yeah. You know, you just kind of like, you know, nod your head and, you know, just kind of like, you know, I'm sure, you know, it, and that's one of the things, you know, you're breeding reptiles and there's somebody else that's going to be selling them cheaper. But you got to keep in mind too, you're not just buying that animal. You're buying that person's business in a sense. 
you're, you know, there's a lot more to it. If you have a problem, you know, with that animal, are they going to be there to help you with it? You know, did they produce that animal themselves? You know, um, the way I look at like buying animals been really, really odd and rare. I'm not as concerned about saving like five, 10, $20 no. is who's producing it. If it's, if my same, if a, a good friend of mine has it, and, you know, somebody I don't know all that well has it and theirs is a little cheaper. I'm probably going to buy it from my friend because I know, you know, it, and that's kind of a thing I've read about business is like most of your customers are going to be repeat customers. And, you know, you do them good and they support you. You're going to return the favor. I mean, I've got people now like, you know, that have given me some like really awesome animals. I mean, it's just like unbelievable, like some of the deals that I've get, you know, because people know you know, that that stuff comes back around. Um, and they're not as concerned as far as like making, you know, money sometimes as, you know, they, you know, it, they, they are animals. So you want to, you know, you don't want to give them away. Mm-hmm. There's this weird thing where people are going to take care of an animal more often than not that they paid more money for. And that's, that's unfortunate that that normal corn snake isn't going to get the same amount of care probably as that palmetto. Right. That's why it's like so much easier to sell to someone you already know. And that's why like people always ask me, hey, like I thought this person was breeding this and then, you know, none of them are available or whatever, whatever. How'd you get this? Well, I was like, well, like my friend bred it and that's how I got it. Because honestly, like once you start to know people, you kind of get first pick before it even gets out there. So it's like that's a really important part of our hobby for people to know. yeah, I mean, I breed snakes for myself. I'm my best customer. And so the stuff that I don't keep, you know, my friends get or we trade. You know, and then after that, it kind of goes public. And then then you got the other step where it's just stuff, you know, a lot of Amels, Snows, byproducts and stuff like that. You end up wholesaling and stuff like that. Um, and it's unfortunate because, you know, not every animal you produce is going to end up you know, Where you in the best to. care. Right. You know, that's something that people just kind of have to consider too. Um, it's unfortunate, but that's kind of the reality of it too. I so, mean, you see some breeders, I mean, they rationalize it in the fact of, you know, you're kind of doing agriculture, you're breeding, you're right. almost farming in a sense. So it's like not every, like, um, Eugene Bissett would say, not every tomato makes it to the salad bar. So unfortunately, maybe not every snake makes it to the tub or wherever the tub is. Yeah, I mean, I've referred to my animals before as livestock. I I didn't really consider them pets because to me, pets have names. And most of my, I don't even know if any of my animals, my reptiles have names. Um, I've got a cat with a name, but, you know. (laughs) Um, it's like pets you don't sell, you know? Um, right. So, I don't know. I mean, you know, and I really wouldn't put like a cat or dog in the same as like a snake or a gecko or something like that. I mean, call me a speciesist. I don't know. Yeah. I just... There's a certain level of consciousness that you get with a warm-blooded animal that you certainly don't get with a cold-blooded animal. Most right. Of the not to say I want to see, you know, the cold-blooded animal in any less than ideal, mm-hmm. no, being mistreated or anything like that. But at the same realistic. time, 
yeah, it's, you know, just. Unfortunately, it's part of, it's part of what we do. But I felt like I had something to say and I just forgot. Oh, I'm sorry. Too much. No, I just got lost into the chat. Someone, I had to tell them they're about to get blocked from the chat. Hey. Kids get real squirrely when you give them shit to... Squirrely's not even the word. They get very, very dirty. Oh, you know what I had to say? Okay. Wait, so, wait, wait how did hey. me saying dirty remind you of what you had to say? Because this shit's gonna get a little dirty. Um, <laughs> I, was, I wasn't sure if this was... I don't want you to take a stance, because I bet people don't know the people who are in play, but you probably know the people who are in play. But... Palmettos, so we know that approximately again, the, the people who produce stuff again. We brought it I up need so get, many times. Get a fucking opinion, but um, oh. Palmettos, we know about ten percent of them come out bug-eyed or so, you know, random <laughs> percentage. But um, people, the market, no, 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 not. Good. But the market, do you sell those animals? Do you cull those animals? What do you do with those animals, and how do we approach it going forward? Yeah, um, from my understanding, like the the bug eyed trait isn't something that you're ever gonna like completely weed out. It's kind of uh, something that's tied into. Um, so you know, I've seen. I don't know if I get annoyed or I just get amused at this point with, you know, the whole allegations of uh, palmettos coming from Texas rat snakes. And I'm like, have you ever seen a Texas rat snake covered with like spots? Because I haven't. Um, I mean, that's a whole other discussion. But you know, on, on your question, on something like that, I think once the price on those things comes down, people would probably call them. But knowing that you could probably still get four figures, five hundred bucks at least, you know, I you know, but you know, it kind of gets to the point where that doesn't mean is the animal suffering. Because its eyes are larger? I don't know. Not that I'm aware of. Um, you know, some people could say the same thing about the the gene itself. You know, it's, it's missing, you know, melanin. You know, is that any worse than it? It's, eye, you know, look at, you know, domestic breeds of dogs and stuff like that. I'm missing a lot of melanin. You know, yeah. Um, yeah, so, you're struggling. You I get sunburns. You get sunburns. I don't. Yeah, I'm a better well, species. You yeah. Know. <laughs> you're more adop- adapted to yeah, the I'm, sunlight. But yeah, I, I think avoid it's hard. sunlight like an albino vampire. <laughs> hey, you're darker than he is. You In this light, it's the light, damn You got it. a little tan there. It's the light. But I don't know. I mean, if I had palmettos and I hatched out bug-eyed ones, well, what would I do? Yeah say i mean you, we can like theorize what we would do but if somebody's offering you you had two of them and somebody offered you a thousand bucks you know i'll be honest with you it'd be hard to say no yeah but especially if i don't you know now if we knew 100 percent that the animal was suffering i think that that's a little different but really at this point it's just aesthetics i mean there are people who like bug-eyed leucistic rat snakes you know so I mean, I have culled corns that weren't feeding. You know, I've put them, you know, fed them off to king snakes that I've had. Um, because, you know, sometimes That's that is... She hates when I do that. No, 
No, that's not what I was saying. Say we've done that. I, I get grossed out, but I understand it's it's life cycle shit. But life cycle. Not shit. that's not what I meant. Hashtag uh, life cycle. That's shit. not what I meant. Like what's the what's the expression? Something of life. No, you're circle, good. Of life. circle of life. Circle of life. Thank you. Yeah. We're just living in a simulation um, of the Lion King. Yeah. <laughs> so un- unless somebody can show me, you know, that those animals are like in fact suffering. Which, to the best of my knowledge, they're not. I don't really think it's my place to tell somebody that they should or shouldn't sell them. Um, I'm curious if anybody, and I'm sure it's been done with leucistic Texas rats, breeding two bug-eyed ones together has produced more or you know a greater number of them. If it's just something that occasionally happens, I don't know how those genetic works. I just know that that's something that is just kind of connected to leucistic you know, that gene, what, no matter what species it's in, that happens, in snakes at least. So, you know, it kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, kink snakes. Um, I personally don't think kinking is genetic. In my experience, it has to do more with uh, problems with incubation. You know, keeping your, uh, keeping it too humid in there. I've seen snakes with like their bodies fused together you know, a couple kinks, a lot of kinks and stuff like that. Um, now, there's a thing going on on corn snakes. It's believed that it's somehow connected to lavender. And it might be experience with lavender. I never noticed a higher propensity for kink snakes and lavender. Mm-hmm. But like I said, I don't think kinking is necessarily genetic either. But I've but never bred two kinks, kink snakes together to see, you know, what happened from that. Um, yeah, I don't believe it's genetic either. I mean, I, I think animals, you know, if I was going to keep a pair of kink snakes and that's a pair of something else I can't keep. Yeah. So it didn't stupid. seem like a worthy trade to me, but. But if it's connected to humidity or whatever, why? Well, there's some Did genes like, fart? like, no, no, <laughs> that was me trying to interject. But, it sounds like a fart. But like, I was like, like Wait, caramel albinos and ball pythons certainly are genetically kinked. It's a mutation that's linked to the kink. But in corn snakes, I don't know of any of that out. But if it's humidity, they all went under, underwent. Well, it could be also temperature all, swings, in my opinion. But they, but they all were affected. It that doesn't make sense to me. If they were all affected by the same Well, you know a certain degree of our snakes came, come out kinked. But it's like, why does like that happen? like one or two snakes have. It's not, I feel like if they're all under the same the conditions, same, but right, they're not in the same If it's part a humidity then... thing, they should all have it, right? To me, if it's a genetic thing, that makes sense that only one gets it because of the percentages. But if they're all affected by the same humidity, they should all have that. Case. I mean, it, it could be some, a combination. Maybe something, the genetics of one make them less acceptable to environmental stresses. That could also be it. Now, um, Chuck and Connie, who had mentioned earlier, that did like the uh, slicing the pinkies, um, they also, I think it was them, proved that um, you can stress the uh, the temperatures during incubation on corn snakes and alter their pattern. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't remember off the top of my head, you know, what extreme that was. If they were kept cooler or warmer, or just kind of abruptly went from one extreme to the other. But that was something else that, you know, they had shown. Yeah, I mean, you see that in 
you see that in ball pythons. People call it jungle pattern, but really they just had a spike in incubation or something like that. Right. I mean, maybe that's where zigzag originated, but I don't really know. Would you know? Yeah, yeah, that's something I, I've noticed. That there's some, uh, I just call them aberrant corn snakes, where the pattern mm-hmm. you can get a zigzag, where it's not genetic. Um, now, I did work with a line of Aztec corns years ago. And I did a lot of selective breeding with those. And I pretty much, what I called a wide stripe corn snake. I had this thick stripe that, you know, went down most of their body. It was genetic. It was polygenetic. So it wasn't like a simple recessive or dominant trader like that. Um, but I had shown that I could breed them to a normal pattern corn snake and get a few with kind of weird patterns. But if I bred two of the more extreme ones together, then all those babies came out more extreme patterns as well. So you think um, that it can originate with a spike in temperature, but you can pass on that gene polygenically line breeding after that? Yeah, I, I think there's probably, uh, they're not the same trait. They just look visually the same. So you got right. some corn that have like stresses during incubation that'll alter their pattern. And then there's some that are, you know, same thing with like, uh, you know, Motley and Diffused are two uh, in Stripe, um, are corn snakes that will kind of wipe the belly typically f- free of any checkerboard pattern. But I've also produced snakes that weren't any of those that didn't have belly patterns. I never went on to prove if that was something different or just, you know, an anomaly or whatever. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot on genetics that people, it's like reptile breeders, unfortunately get hung up. Sometimes they don't go past Punnett squares, you know, that's like, this is recessive, this is dominant, um, incomplete dominance. There's no true co-dominance that I'm aware of. That's a term that gets thrown around a lot. It's incomplete dominant. Um, but there's a lot of other weird, crazy things that can happen like a null allele. I don't know if you've heard of that where it's basically, you know, you, um, one of the, uh, mothers or the fathers you know they're contributing to that doesn't work so it's basically a head but it's showing because that dominant uh it, it's it's not it doesn't work i have seen You're that confusing happen. me <laughs> and that's just one example of all kinds of like crazy you know that you get into sex linked mutations and stuff like that um there was a study going on a few years ago with cinder corn snakes and how that was kind of sex linked and i know there's some a lot of that in ball pythons with like bananas, I think it is, just bits and pieces right. of things heard. Um, so there's all kinds of weird genetic stuff that it, it, it's always surprised me with the amount of dedication and even money that people spend on the hobby and kind of like get more into the genetics um, and try to pick that apart and figure it out, you know, for a, you know, I think if we had a better understanding of that, it could lead to a lot of cool you know, you know, new things that we wouldn't see otherwise. But it's so confusing. I think it's, I think it's really hard, especially in corns after, you know, 20 years of breeding recessive to recessive and everything has a million hats that you don't know what it is. So it's like, it's hard to right. delineate everything to breed it back to a wild type and try to get all the hats out of it and try to know what's, it's just so hard at this point. Everything's yeah. so muddy. Yeah, you know, I've got a, an idea that it's probably controversial to mention that, but um, <laughs> back on the hybrid thing, 
Um, I, I really believe, and this has been documented in other species, especially with plants, but I know it's been done with fruit flies. I'm not sure about other vertebrates for sure. Um, I was looking into it one time that hybridizing animals can be the genesis for genetic mutations. Um, two examples that I would cite, particularly with corns, would be the ultra and the scalus. Um, I don't think that the... Now, the original scalus corn was just like one surviving egg from that clutch. Right. And there, I don't remember which is which, but there was an emery rat, which really closely related to a corn snake, and then a corn snake. And from the, that pairing, that one egg that survived, scalus and all scalus corns descended from that animal. Now, I don't think either of those animals were heads, which seems to be what a lot of people assumed, because if they were, all the uh, the breeder had to do was, you know, breed those to the same species, and we'd have pure of both. Right. So the fact that it never happened makes me think that it would, you know, at some point, every mutation's got to have its where it started. Something happened. Same thing with ultra. You know, it's widely accepted that the ultra corn snake um, came from breeding a corn snake to a gray rat snake. Where the ultra gray rat snakes or the pure ultra corn snakes or, you know. So from some of the hybridization stuff that I've been reading where this has been done, like I said, especially with plants and, you know, fruit flies and other stuff. I don't know. Like I said, I'm not a geneticist either. And this might be a, a question someone else could, you know, offer a lot more insight than I can. If We've it's like, <laughs> yeah, if, if it's the genes are like so close, the chromosomes or however it works and something just kind of gets knocked off, you know, how that works. But, you know, a lot of times with hybrids, that first generation will look, will all look the same and will look somewhere between both parents. But once you breed those F2s, or you get the F2s from breeding the, the, the first generation's hybrids together, you get all kinds of crazy stuff. And I always wonder, you know, we're just attributing the hybrid variation could be genetic. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but it's something that I've always, you know, I would love to at some point do something like that. I just don't know if it would be, you know. It's, it's so weird that we only have, but we only really, this is very specific to like corn snakes and a lot of the rat snakes that are pretty cr- closely related in comparison to say, there's no, you know, African rock berm, you know, hybrid mutation. I just wonder why it's largely seen in, you know, your ultramels, you know, your scales, yeah, I mean, your I, emeries I, to corns. I can't say on like the pythons because I don't know enough about them. Um, but who's to say there's there's not you know and not not every mutation is like you said color or pattern. There could be other stuff right. too. Um, fascinates me is like we only see certain colors. You know there's you know the ultraviolet light that reptiles and birds, I believe, see in. So maybe there's some other colors of you know there's other mutations that we can't detect you know, that are going on visually that they can see. And it's also what's accompanying the pattern and color. Like do some mutations have less hardiness because they have, it also mutated the way their internal organs are or something, or we have babies that maybe not visibly kinked, but they die anyway, or they have digestive issues. Like there's so many things we can't see. I mean, um, Let's say one time, it's kind of off subject, but it made me think of it. Uh, I hatched a corn snake 
that was missing the top half of its head. What? It had all of the bottom jaw, and it stopped. It stopped kind of after the brain. There was no eyes, no front part of it, the jaw. It, it didn't make it out of the egg. It was like, that was the only egg left, and it had several days. So I have a habit of just kind of like opening the egg, just out of curiosity. And I did that, and I seen this weird thing, and then the tongue started flickering out. And it was like, I've got video of it. I've never shared it just because it's really, yeah, strange. Um, I, and I ended up euthanizing the animal. I mean, there's no way, realistically, this animal would have made it long term. But it was like the craziest thing. It's like no eyes or anything. It was like the brain, and that was the end of the top half of its oh, skull and all the bottom shit. jaw. But the brain was fully know. formed? Yeah, and the tongue was still moving out and everything, and it was... Wow. Well, that's just what said. You, you breed enough animals, you're going to have weird anomalies. You know, sometimes, you know, you can luck out, produce something. And, you know, sometimes it's nothing, you know... That you and want to reproduce. I mean, uh, Don Soderberg proved several years ago that there was a eyeless mutation in corn snakes that was genetic. He, you know, he didn't go on to sell those. Thankfully, I mean, he's, <laughs> wait. So, where what did he but, isolate the gene from? Where did it originally come from? I don't know if it came from his stock, um, but it's something we we talked about one time and. Um, you know, I'm sure he probably weeded it you just out. Leave of it there. He's responsible. You just leave it there. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, I've heard that there was people, you know, at uh, Daytona years ago selling like a, a kiddie pool of two-headed turtles, which I, from my understanding, like the, the turtles, you know, they raise them on farms and they have so many eggs that they get a fair number of them. But, you know, that gets into the whole ethical issue. And how often are those successful? Especially with snakes, you know, we see very, very low percentage. Right. Yeah. I mean, who, but who knows if... I wouldn't think something like that would be genetic, but I don't know. It's... You know, you kind of get into the whole thing of, like, how far is too far. I mean, there's a lot of people that don't like right. morphs. You know? That's stupid. Um, well, not, not exactly. I mean, you could see that, you know, these are animals that wouldn't survive in the wild. So maybe their idea is well, that if an animal doesn't survive in the wild, it shouldn't survive in captivity. But if you're going to do all that, then you're just against keeping... I feel like you need to just... But it's weird because, you know, I have... Morphs. But I have, like, lime-bred jungle carpets that in the wild, they would be dark goldish, brownish, and black, but now they're bright-ass fucking yellow. There's no mutations involved, but they're so far from the natural form and wouldn't survive in the wild. It's like... Right. That might as well be a mutation. If you're, you know, if you're against mutations, you should be against Mm -hmm. line breeding for certain shit. I I I feel like... (sighs) I mean, it's kind of weird because... And I've had this, and I... This discussion before, and I don't know if the person even took it seriously... But it was like, you know, mutations and stuff like that can have an evolutionary advantage. Um, so, you know, would being an albino, an AML or whatever like that, in the wild, that probably wouldn't have an advantage, in most cases at least. Ironically, though, in captivity it does. Right. Because more breeders are reproducing them. What would be an advantage in the wild, it kind of, I guess what I'm getting at, it kind of depends upon the setting. You know what I mean? And that's, you know, somebody's like, oh, these, you know, they don't like scaleless snakes because they wouldn't survive in the wild. Even though there's been adults, scaleless, and, you know, 
lots of species of snakes found. But I tried to make the argument that, you know, scaleless has an evolutionary advantage because keepers are breeding and making more of them. And then in captivity, and like even comparison to the ball python scaleless, not the best. You know, it doesn't have ventral scales. The ventral scales seem to be super fucking important if you're going to have well, a scaleless snake. There's now a micro scale ball python where the scales are smaller. And I guess a lot of people didn't know that there's been a micro scale corn snake for over a decade now, I think. Or close to it, at least. Um, but it, it's by a, a breeder, I think, in the Netherlands. I was about uh, to say, I, I thought I saw someone in Europe post something. Yeah, uh, I seen one recently in one of the forums or groups on Facebook. Um, and it, it just never really caught on for whatever reason. But Does it seem to be recessive uh, or the incomplete dominant form is totally scaleless or is that proven out? I would be curious to see what happens when they breed a microscale to a scaleless. Right. You know, what... I mean, for all we know, we could produce one with larger scales where it looks like a pine cone or something. I don't know. But <laughs> if I get an armor-plated kind of cool corn snake, I'm all for it. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of the cool thing. Yeah, who knows, like, 50 years, you know, if the reptile hobbies... You know, I mean, look at, you know, the stuff we've got now, I would have never imagined when I got into it. Right. You know, some of the bright fluorescent colors that we've got, the scaleless stuff, that's another one gonna have like emerald green and like bright blue snakes i mean it's possible who knows something something totally different i mean it seems like every species there's like a different color like you're it's really hard to get a blue ball python but eventually there'll be a blue one or a straight up blue corn snake blue is really hard to get but i think eventually right the rate of mutation will just keep on happening and we produce so many that we're eventually going to get mutants that are just shit that we can't even imagine right now. Yeah, I mean, there's no really blue animals. I mean, it, as far as like a, a chromatophore that's like producing blue, it's usually like a, a weird trick with a light, like on a blue jay and stuff like that, just the way that the light's reflecting it. It's not actually, you know, like the reds and yellows and stuff like that. But whatever causes it, you know, it's theoretically possible. So, you know, I'm kind of excited to see what happens. You know, like I said, I never would have thought 20 years ago we'd have the stuff we have now. So, and the way stuff grows exponentially that long. And it's just crazy even that, you know, we could find something like palmetto in the wild, like that survived long enough, but obviously had crazy traits to... I mean, who knows what people found that, you know, they didn't know, you know, know. like... You know, or 200 years ago when people were like, you know, some early pioneer or Native American was out and found some weird, you know, now we have the advantage that we can post a picture of it on the internet and somebody's going to give you an insane amount of money for it with such yeah. a brief snapshot in time. You know, who knows? You know, there's, you know, blue uh, garter snakes, so I don't see why that couldn't somehow, you know, show up in corns just whether by chance or selective breeding. It's possible. And someone someone here in East Texas found a, in a very certain location, a scaleless Texas rat. And I was like, fuck, man, I wish I had it just to have location-specific Texas rats. But that's kind of a random Where did thing. they find it? Um, in East Texas, so somewhere kind of oh, near here. No. But what were you going to say? I got to pee again. 
Okay. Yeah, I had a pig into it. Oh, wait, shit, I just lost it. Oh, uh, Joe loser. told me not to ask this question earlier, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Because I didn't think you had. Um, someone asked if you've ever kept... I don't even know how you pr- pronounce so like this. Macron? Markon? Like indigo snakes? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I've never kept indigos. Um, I think they're cool snakes, but um, from what I understand, they... They're a lot of work. They like to poop, and they're really big. <laughs> um... Basically, like a giant garter snake is kind of how I think of them in my mind. Um, okay. No, I, I, I've got some friends that work with them, and I have a lot of respect to, you know, largest genus of the largest snakes in North America, and they're protected. Um, but no, I, I've never I've never kept it myself. It, it is one of those things that's like, from the people that's... They, they do require a lot of cage cleaning, let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, um, but they're yeah. also supposed to be very intelligent snakes, too. So I, I have respect for people that specialize in that. Um, in other intelligence. Than, <laughs> other than doing some art with indigos, um, that's, that's the closest I've came. I got turned off because the Orient Society did a, um, a study on them, and it turns out that within a year, they actually span, like, a good amount of space as far as, like, a few miles a year. So, I mean, at least one mile a year. So I felt bad if I was going to keep them in, like, a four-foot enclosure. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That's stupid because corn snakes probably fucking travel that long, too. But, <laughs> but you know, science hasn't said so, so I'll keep them in a 24-quart tub, you know, whatever. Yeah, and the ones that are tubs aren't moving that much. Like, because they don't have to, I guess. They sit still. That's the They're advantage. Chilling. Yeah. Do you have any other questions? And especially ours. I don't know. I mean, obviously, you're in a way different place, but for the last two, three months, I feel like ninety percent of our corn snakes have hung out on the cool side. That's a. I was wondering if you've seen the same thing. As far as we brewmate, um, just because we don't have space, because we have like an outdoor storage area. I can only brewmate my adult corn snakes, so I have like 30 corn snakes in the brumation, but I keep a lot of my yearling and holdbacks up here, but they still go to the cool side of the cage pretty much all the winter, and I don't feed them as much, and everyone's cool. Like, do you find that they kind of try to brewmate themselves? Um, I've never, like, when I would brewmate my animals, I usually just kept them in the basement, and I... I don't know if I necessarily had like a cool and warm side of, you know, the container, you know, that I was keeping them in. I just, you know, kind of monitored the room. And that's how I've always kept my animals. Um, You know, I'd keep them in a spare bedroom in the warmer times of the year and heat it with an electric oil-filled heater. Um, So I've never really paid much attention during brumation. I kind of jokingly refer to it as my... You know, snake vacation or snakecation, um, because it was like the three months of the year where I could kind of like, you know, relax and <laughs> I couldn't wait. I could, you know, because you'd have all these babies coming out and it was so much work, you know, you know, because I had a full time job and then I'd come home and I'd have at least four hours every night of feeding the babies and the adults and shipping and all that. Um, so, you know, when winter came around, it's kind of like, okay, I get a break. And then I bring them up, I'd start missing them. And I was like, oh, I can't wait to bring them up again. So it kind of, that's one advantage I've always loved about Colubrids is it kind of gave me a nice little break. But 
no, I, like I said, I, I would try to aim for, you know, kind of like the low to mid fifties. Um, you know, and make sure that they got clean water and stuff like that. But I, I never really noticed any, you know, they were on one side of the tub or the other. Are so you, oh, are you, okay. So you're saying you roommate, you roommated everything. Is that what you're saying? Um, I not usually like the babies that were born that year. Okay. I would keep up just so I could get more size on them. Now I have done uh, an experiment years ago where I had babies that wouldn't feed and I put them down for about a month and I brought them out and some of them actually did feed. I don't know if that was coincidence or that had something to do with it. It kind of reset something, but and that if you've got babies late in the year, it's certainly worth a try at least. And this I've is... also bred, I've also bred corns and I didn't brumate them. You know, I, one year I had like 60, 70 females and I didn't brumate them. And I, I, you know, I still produce, you know, over a thousand babies that year. Um, but like I said, it's, it's a nice break and it certainly saves on your mouse bill. So, you know, why not? Um, but I realize there's sometimes situations, you know, if you're in an apartment or something like that, um, maybe said if, if you've got hundreds of snakes in an apartment uh, where you just can't roommate them, it's not necessary with corns at least. Mm-hmm. But who's to say, you know, after a couple of years of not roommating them, maybe it would have more of an effect. Do you know, I mean, there's a few different trains of thought, but... Some people are very strict about your 55 degrees, and quite frankly, when I lived in New York, I did, you know, 50 to 55, but here in Texas, it swings, and I personally don't care if it swings that much, because I read the love book, and they kept their their garage door open, and, you know, the Florida weather, so are you careful not to get above 55 degrees, or? Yeah, I mean, you're going to have some warm days. And I don't think if, you know, you got one or two days, it's not really going to be an issue where you get into a problem. It's like for an extended period of time, you know, you don't want a week of 60 degrees. That's kind of like the danger zone of it's not cold enough for them to kind of go into that, you know, brumation mode, but it's not warm enough for them to kind of function, you know, ideally either. Um, And if if that was going to be an issue, I would just go ahead and warm them up. You know, I would better to not brumate them if you can't or if you know it turns out you couldn't too long um it's gonna be an issue just skip brumation and warm them up Mm -hmm. so you believe in that you can't keep them at because i've kept them at i've even kept them as far as i drop them i just turn thermostats off and stop feeding and i'll stop feeding and then bring up the rate of feed and then they act like it's spring so i I have triggered them other ways besides temperature, so I've triggered them feeding-wise. So I wasn't sure if that's a reasonable way to go about. (laughs) Right. Yeah, you know, and I've heard stories of people, you know, with various species where they've moved to different parts of the country and they kind of lost a year in production. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure the animals are more uh, sensitive of, you know, whether it's uh, temperature differences Humidity, barometric pressure, who knows, you know, all kinds of little things that we may not notice ourselves. But yeah, I mean, if you're going to move from different parts of the country, just be prepared that that might be something that, you know, you have to anticipate that you're going to lose a year or your production is going to go down significantly. 
Uh-huh. And it's also something to consider. I guess if you're, you know, importing animals, you know, um, if you're in Florida and you're buying animals from someone, you know, on the West Coast, those animals themselves might be a little off. Or so, even, you know, you know people, might, buy, people buy imports from Indonesia or something and the yeah. obviously the seasons are flip-flopped. So people are like, oh, I'm going to get this and breed this then. But, you know. The season, yeah, and you get all yeah. kinds of issues there. I mean, wild caught and parasites, and yeah. who knows how they were treated, shipped here, or how they were captured, and all kinds of stuff. I mean, that's that's a whole nother level right there of you know difficulty. Um, kind of random, but have you ever had to travel with babies or not babies, excuse me, with eggs? Um, I had moved one time. And I had several, I mean, it wasn't far. It was maybe 30 minutes away. Um, and I, I probably had, you know, I don't know how many eggs, probably like 30 or 40 clutches at that point. I've got a photo of it, actually. I came across it the other day on my computer. But I've got all these eggs. Um, it, it's not something that I would recommend because you really don't want to move reptile eggs too much. You don't want to, you know, your incubator... It's probably going to be a little more, um, hopefully, stable than moving them out in your car, especially in the summer. You know, you know when the, when the eggs are incubating around here. You know, it'd be like July or so, which you know sometimes it might be ninety degrees or so. You, you turn air conditioning on your car. You know how cool is it in your car now? And but yeah, I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah, we're but, moving in July, and I'm very nervous. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, you know, like I said, that's just one of the things I would tell anybody, just prepare that not, things aren't going to go like they should in the book. That's just not that you shouldn't strive for that, but life. I mean, I would probably be the poster boy for that. I, I, the crazy, I swear sometimes my life is scripted by some of the craziness that happens and I just kind of try to roll with it now, but you know, it's. You kind of plan for the best and expect the worst. Um, Well, as far as planning for the best, if you were moving uh, 21 hours away (laughs) with eggs, what would you do? (laughs) If I were going to do that, I would find someone local, fairly local, where the eggs are laid and let them um, incubate the eggs. And once the babies are hatched, have them ship the babies to you. That's what I would do. That's actually a good idea. <laughs> Personally, do we have some? Um, you know, yeah, if you're in Texas, you, you know, you probably find somebody. I know Texas has got a pretty good reptile community. Um, someone that you trust. Um, but yeah, there's. I wouldn't go that far with eggs. I mean, even with adult animals, you know, that was like one of the stressful things. I would joke about going to shows with all these animals. I'm like, what if I had a car accident, and then the paramedics are drawing straws. You know, there's this guy like they're bleeding out and I'm covered in this mass of snakes. (laughs) I'm going to, when I go out, that's kind of, you know, I guess that'd be a cool way to do it. But I'd say catch all the snakes first and then worry about me later. I don't really care. Yeah. Well, you can't tell them that if you're paramedics don't care. I mean, but you know, they're going to have an interesting story. Oh, that makes but, me even more nervous well, really, for us moving. Are you are you a put the eggs on top of the racks guy or are you yeah, an incubator? To be honest with you, 
I used to just set them on top of my kitchen cabinets until I ran out of kitchen cabinet space. Um, but yeah, my home, most homes are kind of kept within that, you know, where it's kind of, it just happens to be that ideal temperature up there. Let, you know, at the top heat rises. Um, I eventually ran a cabinet space. So then I just started setting them on top of my racks. I've never ever like done the incubator thing. I've seen some really cool stuff where people convert, you know, mini fridges and all this kind of stuff. I'm not an electrician. Um, so, and I've had, you know, my philosophy, if it's like, if it works, you know, that, that, that that's good enough for me. No sense to make it anything more complicated. Yeah, I think we were gifted with the ease of incubation, so why not just make your life easy and yeah. keep them, you know. I mean, although I did, um, the warmest place I can get them was 74 this year. It took 90 days, so uh, that's a little bit longer than usual. Yeah. If you want your eggs to come out fast, don't put them at 74 degrees. Um, I'm going to run to the bathroom real quick. Two yeah. Go for it. We can talk. Um, okay, someone said, why not just have a little generator in the car to keep the incubator on? Yeah, like we could definitely, as far as when I moved all my adult snakes in Colorado, I did have heat hooked up, and then I had a converter to hook up a thermostat in the car and keep it the 70, like 75 degrees just because, so... I mean, I could definitely see that kind of you would just do it on a strategy work for the babies, or I mean, for the eggs, or would you I would do. It? You know, I would try to keep it eighty degrees or whatever my room, because I'm gonna have them ambient in where all the um, adults are. So we're probably gonna be running eighty to eighty-two. So you can drive in a car for twenty-one hours. It's eighty degrees. No, it won't be the whole car. Oh. It will be. I will set up like an insulated box if that's oh. the case. But it would be sweet if someone was here to hatch them all out and send them out. But the, my only issue with that is I may not have um, a lot of the animals may not be technically expensive enough to do. I mean, I would lose a lot of money in the process either way. I How think. much is that? Either I lose a lot of babies or I lose a lot of money. I don't think it matters which which. I mean, I no, no, that's not true. Babies. I want to hatch out as many. I want to hatch out as many eggs as possible. But that also sounds expensive to have someone ship us. Babies. I know it's hard either We're way. We're gonna have because, like two hundred babies. That's so expensive. I mean, if I can really, um, I don't know if I can really figure something out as far as hooking up a thermostat. But if I could, I mean, that would be great. But it's not gonna be as straightforward. It will be something where it's like half of them are gonna be gravid and half of them are gonna have to already laid and it's gonna be a fucking mess oh why are we moving into lie <laughs> why are we moving into lie yeah it's Dude, never fun time to move. like you know in the middle of summer or winter right I've done it yeah and it's especially with animals um, and you gotta consider too if you have like vehicle problems you know what are you gonna do um <sighs> oh yeah, if a car breaks down and then I'm depending on that car to keep some sort yeah. of thermostat running on it, it's going to be a shit show. But once we get past this year, I mean... No. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I think even if it, um, if I was moving that far, um, is to have, do all your move, leave your animals with someone you trust. 
and have them ship you the animals once you get there. That's going to be so expensive, though. I, yeah. Well, you also got to consider, though, like I said, if something happened, you know, most people don't plan on having their vehicle or something like that. And, yeah, if, if it was a couple animals, you know, you could probably pack them in a cooler and stuff like that. Um, I don't know. No. Like I said, I had a friend come down, you know, and pick up my animals, and he took them from Tennessee to West Virginia. I think there was like 40 or so adult corn snakes and, you know, maybe half a dozen garter snakes or so. And But I don't know. It's... It went 21 hours. I know that. Yeah. I did. I did Colorado or New York to Colorado, and a pine snake got out, and a green tree python got out, which like oh, isn't the best combo. But... In your car? Yeah, no, no, it was like in a bin that I all had them in, and I, I tried to temperature control the bin, which I mean it worked for the time being, but I don't really love having a pine snake out with a green tree python and all this weird shit and putting all my snakes in one bucket, but. But I, 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 I once lost a, I once lost a uh, Midland water snake in the dash of my car, an adult that got out and like, went up in the dash. And it was like in August, I think. Oh. And we spent like three hours, like, you know, on our head trying to like look up there and get this, you know, water snakes don't have the best disposition sometimes. And finally I gave up and I was working second shift at the time. Um, and I was like, well, I'll just leave my windows, you know, cracked or whatever. Um, it wasn't terribly hot out and I'll just go check on my brakes, lunch, whatever, see if it comes out. Well, I, uh, hit some railroad tracks on my way to work and I guess that kind of scared him and fell out. So I immediately stopped the car and there was these guys uh, working on the road. And so they see this car, like all of a sudden stop out and like bends down and pulls up this like three four foot water snake and you know it's all writhing around and everything and (laughs) it was the same county at least where i caught it um and i just kind of like you know there was ponds and stuff you know out in the country kind of like tossed him out there (laughs) this mess of ventured into my car i'm sure something you know gave them something to talk about but so yeah just you don't want a snake going in your dash. It's the moral of the story. No. You want to keep everyone under wraps as much as possible. Right. Um, I don't know if there was a hole in the bag or I didn't have it tied right or what. Why I even had a water snake, I don't know. Um, I think it was one of those uh, I kept him for a while back before, you know, I got into breeding corns and all that. And I was just, you know, hey, there's something cool. I'll keep it for a while. And kind of had the whole, like, little zoo kind of thing going on with like native species or whatever right you know naturalistic setups and i don't know I guess like, that's what's probably the least fun thing. thing i could keep yeah i mean yeah like i said now i can't even i see a water snake and i'm like yeah it's a water snake i'm not even gonna you know if it's like rat snake king snake something like that I'll, you know catch it you know just you know get some pictures whatever water snakes racers are just kind of those i'm just like yeah it's not worth the you know down here we have those like um what are those broad bandits or whatever those really like flame red orange um water snakes with black on them they're like the only cool water snakes but 
I would keep those, but they're still probably terrible. I still probably would never keep them, actually. But yeah, I mean, like I said, I I kind of see them as you know, a garter snakes. I've kept a lot of garter snakes, and they're kind of flighty sometimes. Um, I had this one. It was like a T positive Eastern, and it was like the coolest looking garter. But every time I opened that snake's tub, it shot out and would like go across the room. I don't think I ever you know fed it watered it whatever spot cleaned it without it getting out of its tub and so like, i would always do him last because i spend most of my time chasing him across the room yeah yeah i do the same thing with uh i just i just threw the chair earlier like she had a bunch of stuff stacked up on the chair but the olive python i opened the enclosure and then i let it out i let him roam around the room but he's pretty big but he got behind the mattresses and throw some stuff around. It was earlier. Was that gone? Yeah, when you were gone, remember it was dirty before. Now it's clean. Aren't you happy? Yeah, a lot but of I'm effort to clean that one fucking man. Yeah, they're not. What? Are they, he's giant, man. He's giant. Okay. It's not like a corn snake that would get lost in a second. Yeah. Well, the uh, the first corn snake I got, like I said, I got him when I was sixteen. I had him for a month, and he got out. And when he got out, it was like August. And then the following March, my uncle next door found him under a railroad tie. And, you know, knew the snake really weird looking, you know, that it wasn't something, you know, he'd normally come across. Cool. You know, and he was sitting there in a bucket on my front porch. And like I said, that was the one I went on, you know, I had him for 20 something years after that. Um, And I actually used that snake. Um a silhouette of him on like all my different, you know, projects from like my art to my snake breeding logo or whatever. Um, just because, you know, like I said, he was kind of what started it all with me and corns. So I had a a similar one with one of my first is we, it got out like the year before we caught it the next spring somehow, but like my dad caught it in the backyard and we saw it when we were in the pool, but that's a whole nother, like it's crazy. He was bigger and everything. And you know, it was honestly him because you know, there's no albino corn snakes in Southern Illinois. Um, there might be now, I mean, I've, I'll be honest, I've had stuff get out, babies that I <laughs> never showed up, so I'm hoping right. I didn't like establish any. I, I would joke about that sometimes too, that you know, if a tornado ever hit, you know, every time the tornado sirens would go off, I'm like, well, this could be bad. Um, <laughs> indigenous species now. Um, but that never happened, fortunately, so. I mean, that's like the first thing I tell people is these things are small, make sure they're secure, they're hard to keep under wraps when it's a baby corn snake. They pretty much always get out if you give them an opportunity. Yeah, it doesn't. They're almost impossible to recover. Um, total side, well, I can talk in my mic. Total different conversation. I don't even know if you know the answer, but someone asked you, uh, how much room does an adult ATV need? Okay, that's way off subject, but an adult Amazon Trebo can grow up to six feet. I mean, you're going to want at least a four-foot enclosure if you can do good shelving and stuff in there. So, I mean, they're not necessarily arboreal as far as they're going to perch like a green tree or anything like that. But you're going to want shelves, or they usually want like at least three points of contact to stay on. So you want some shelving or vines or... I do like the plastic fencing. 
So there's this plastic vinyl like PVC fencing that you can use for gardening that mm -hmm. they can like you can put from perch to perch or shelf to shelf so they can get those extra points of contact. So there you go for your random question. Thank of the you, day. random question. But he's a, a avid follower, so. Thank you. Um, but also we are. We are at two hours. We are past our two hours. Donovan, thank you so much for coming on and talk a little bit about what you got going on, what you want people to check out, and where they can reach you. Okay, well, I probably spend way too much time on Facebook. Um, my art page is drawn to scales. I have the world's first reptile tattoo coloring book available. Hey. Um, I'm also going, while I'm doing shameless plugs, I'm also uh, thinking, want to thank all my friends who nominated me. The Reptile Report Awards are coming up. If anyone wants to nominate me again for Artist of the Year, we'll that's do really it. cool. That's probably the only recognition for reptile artists that I'm aware of. <laughs> and since I do this, since I do this now professionally, um, you know, that's cool. That you know, and there's a lot of other really cool artists, really good artists that you know are up there. And I, like I said, just the fact that people enjoy and want to pay me to do my favorite thing in the world, I think is awesome. Um, so yeah, just check out my, like I said, my, uh, drawn to scales is my art. I've got Facebook page. I've got an Etsy store. Um, and I'm always spamming all the groups I can with my art too. So I'm uh, not yeah. hard to miss. So, and then Instagram, do you have Instagram? You yeah, plug? I'm on Instagram as well. I, I tried everything else from Google plus to Twitter and I just kind of gave up. Tumblr is Tumblr. It's like a whole nother weird Great thing about tumblers that your fetishes. seem kind of normal. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I'm not hard to find um, online at least. Um, it, it's weird because I'm really um, an eccentric introvert. And apart from reptile shows and, you know, social media, that's about my only contact I have most of the time with the outside world other than my girlfriend and my kids. Um, but yeah, it's... You'd have more trouble trying to avoid me than you would finding me. Put it that way. <laughs> You'll see him on the colubrid yeah. groups and whatever that is. But um, right. and while you're there at the Reptile Report, you can nominate us for... Well, oh, I just told everyone in the chat oh, to do to go, it. Oh, way to go, asshole. It's okay. Go I, I hate plugging that kind yeah, of shit. I, I feel don't like think you would a, do it. That's, uh, why, that's why I said it in the chat. I, I don't, I know you, I'm fine you with it. it. I'll, you know... Like I said, it's, it's fine. I have no problem. He hates it. He hates plugging us. Which I'm like, the, who gives a shit? Uh, go like us, or go nominate us a video show of the year, Port City Pythons. <laughs> and radio show of the year. And radio show of the year, but it's kind of pointless to do radio show of the year because but, but NPR um, is going to win radio show no, of the no, year. No, no, no. They, they deserve to win, okay? But all the other people who haven't put out episodes this whole year and still get nominated. Yes. That's yes. What, There's a lot of people we getting nominated them, guys, who haven't pumps. even done anything in like a year. So that's bullshit. I had that happen when I was doing my Corn Snake podcast. I quit doing it and I'm still having people nominate me and I was like, it's... No, go do somebody else that's still, still doing it. Um, but it's like, I don't know. 
Um, I don't really care, but then again, it's but like, that would be nice because we put this shit out every week, so it's like... Yeah. yeah. So, I uh, mean, NPR 100% deserves it. Like, no, don't, no, they're going to win either about way. about promoting yourself. I mean, nothing wrong with that. You know, you're, you're doing something that, you know, is educational and entertaining. You should be proud of that. Um, yeah. And so. if you have a kid under 10 and they don't have a reptile coloring book, then shame on you. Because you should exactly. go from Donovan. Is it for or, kids or, or over, is it for adults? Over 10. <laughs> or if you, yeah, if you need an adult coloring book therapy, right? That's a thing? Yes, yes, There yes. you go. Right. Yeah, I, did, I didn't use the word adult coloring book because I didn't like the connotation <laughs> of adult coloring book. None of the snakes but, wear clothes. And, hey. Right. And I kind of did like like different versions so you got like a, a simple you know you got like a morph and then you can kind of like do your own morph and add your own banner okay okay because so, i've never seen a purple duck before that's really right. what it's for exactly what was that accent i'm hoping well, i'm hoping that was this my does Billy this, impression. this does well i want to do like a series of them so cool and check out his art if you're into corn snakes if you're in uh you have all types of shit you even have morelia stuff with a lot of right. us are into Morelia. I picked everything or... from like Morelia to indigo snakes to dogs. Um, and you know, what a, sickness, right? Bella Lugosi, you know, whatever. What did you say? So. He drew the sickness. Oh, he did the sickness. Right, yeah. So. Which is a, a local guy, he's... Bill Stiegel. Yeah, actually, hang on. I got it right here, actually. Ooh, I didn't realize how velvety cool that chair is, by the way. <laughs> Ooh, sickness. The coolest, so yeah, once the I, coolest I, green tree. I'll see pictures, and I'm like, I gotta paint that. Mm-hmm. So. Really cool. Where can you get your prints? You probably already said this, but I'm fucking... I haven't really done any prints yet. Stuff. Um, oh, really? Yeah, that's something... I'm hoping to get like a, uh, a good uh, printer myself so I can make my own. Um, so most of the stuff I sell is like originals. Um, I don't know. I, I, I have weird views on prints. I just kind of feel like it kind of devalues the original sometimes, but I'm sure I'll probably get greedy or something at some point and do it anyway. Okay, <laughs> wait, I'm sorry. I was talking while you showed the sickness. So everyone only saw me making noises. So can you show the sickness again while <laughs> I'm noises. quiet? Make sure I got so here's here he is. Hell yeah. I can't talk, sorry. But Shit, you fucked oh, no, he saw it, they saw it. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> but the, <laughs> we've rambled on for the outro for like thirty minutes. So. Okay, someone said, Wow, well, that's awesome. Oh, also by the way, like three people during this podcast have been like, oh, that's the like art, uh, corn snake art guy, or like something like that, and so it's something just that to, effect. to pump up your ego a little bit. Everyone's like, "Oh, this guy is cool." Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 my niche. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for watching, for listening, for being here. Um, PortCityPythons.com, Instagram, PortCityPythons, whatever, PortCityPythons. If you made it this far, you know all of our shit. Next week's episode 50, we clearly did it. Episode 50, we're going to have it on Tuesday because Brandon can't do Monday, so. Yeah, well, 
We didn't play anything super cool, but we're having... Brandon Sanders. If I'm not fucking it up, it's Brandon Sanders. I think that's his name. We're going to talk about a little bit of him trying to pair up green tree pythons and jungle python, jungle carpet pythons. And we're just going to talk general fun Morelia stuff. Maybe you will find a way to make it special for 50. I don't uh, know how. Uh, Brandon will... I'll tell him to bring his A-game. Bring his A-game. Yeah. Also, everyone... Uh, please pray that my school is closed tomorrow because we're potentially pray getting, for snow in we're getting snow flurries. So I might have off school. I might have a three day week. And buy a coloring book, you fucks. Sorry. Guys. Coloring book, great thing to do when you're snowed in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, there you go. That was a proper transition instead of just <laughs> yelling at people. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. Later. Bye. Bye.